This is special bonus episode 71B, and I say that not because it's related to 71, but because it falls directly between 71 and 72. Uh, so this is separate from our normally scheduled programming. Today's episode is actually a recording of a seminar that I gave for the RISE Network at the end of May, and this is a talk I did on student rentals, my philosophy on investing, and how I got started, some of the hiccups along the way, and uh, then I did about a 20-minute discussion at the end of it, just taking Q&A and then going through a spreadsheet that I created to analyze deals so that I could size them up in a few minutes. That's something that I actually do share at the end of the episode, but you also can just, if you'd like, go to andrew-hines.com forward slash cash flow if you'd like to get access to that sheet. What I'd suggest you do with this episode is feel free to listen to the audio version if you happen to be driving or you're listening to it on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to enjoy your episodes. And uh, if you would like to really dig into the numbers and the Q&A at the end of the episode, I would suggest you actually go to the YouTube version. So if you want to access that directly, just use my link tree. Uh, You can either use that through Instagram or you can just simply go to YouTube and search my name. You will definitely find my channel. Again, this is episode 71b thanks so much for your continued loyalty to this podcast please enjoy this presentation okay so um yeah just to build off of your point before we even get into it is uh not just with investment advice and everything like everything that's going on right now you have to realize that every single person has bias in everything you're saying every single news headline every single politician across the board, uh, has an agenda of some sort, has a bias of some sort, whether it's a paid agenda or just a personal preference, um, they all exist. So I think that uh, it's a very, a very adult thing to just admit that that's, that's the case and um, question everything. And uh, that's kind of what led me to be a real estate investor. If I hadn't, uh, I would have you know, just been working a regular nine to five job. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I wouldn't have gone down this road at all. Uh, if I hadn't. And I think the thing that, that makes us all alike as real estate investors is that we, uh, we all thought about something critically at one point and decided, hey, the normal plan doesn't work. And um, how much of a silly failure is that of our educational system that that's where we're at? That this, is, this is what we do. And uh, you know, not that many people are, in fact, real estate investors. So I'm just going to try and see if I can get the uh, comments up here on the screen too. I can't yeah, see any of them. You should have it on the side pop out. I'll, I'll read it to you if there's anything. Yeah, like, if yeah. stuff comes up, just chime in because I, with the presenter view on here, I can't see. But uh, uh, anyway, so I'm going to just jump into this and um, I have a bunch of slides here, but I might skip some of the stuff so we can just get to questions and, um, and I can show you. I'm going to go through uh, my spreadsheet at the end and, and we can kind of just get into um, some analysis and some of the ways I look at properties and, you know, of course, COVID related too. All right. So building general generational wealth through student rentals, uh, investing uh, a little bit about me. I've uh, been an investor since 2011. I actually graduated from Ivy at uh, Western University. And in uh, 2010, I got my mortgage agent license because I wanted to learn about real estate investing. Um, I am a student rental investor and operator. Uh, and I also own a construction company and I do a lot of uh, new construction homes. I consult for investors and developers. And uh, I also use that construction company for my own projects. And then uh, I think many of you are probably familiar with my podcast. If not, uh, by all means, I'd be honored if you'd uh, give it a listen. And you can just search my name, Andrew Hines, on any of the podcast platforms and YouTube and you'll be able to find it. Okay, so let's click over to the next slide here. 
Okay, that's not wanting to work, but I'll do it manually. Okay, so today I'm going to take a bit of a different approach. And if anyone saw me at the Right Club, this is a similar presentation. Uh, but uh, I'm going to just kind of tell you my story and some of the lessons I learned along the way. And then hopefully, if, if you can see kind of the, the mental thought process I went through, some of the pain I went through, I can save you some of that yourself uh, as you get into uh, as you get into this. So um, going to be... Um, so my life story, I'm going to get into some case studies uh, uh, for some context as well. Um, what I'm going to cover is why student rentals, picking the right markets, picking the right locations, uh, the student rental burr, which is extremely important if you want to keep, uh, keep rocking and rolling, and uh, building your systems and your teams as well as the financing ins and outs. And whether or not you end up wanting to invest in student rentals, this is totally applicable for people who, who uh, do single family homes as well. There's just a lot of specifics here for student rental investors uh, as well. Uh, so this is me uh, with my dad growing up, uh, 1996 approximately. So my dad, for some reason, liked to build uh, his own houses in the summers. He was a school teacher and he just decided that he was going to build his own houses uh, for our family to live in. So I kind of had a feeling that I'd be able to tackle it uh, when I got into this, but I had absolutely no hands-on experience when it came to real estate in any way, shape or form. I mean, I hung some drywall at the age of 10. Uh, so that was about, uh, about the experience I had. Uh, but this is where I started getting inspired. So 2006 um, at Western University, these buildings were actually what did it for me because my friends lived in that second building right there and um, they were paying about $500 a month. There were five, uh, five bedroom units and there were four of them in one building and then there are four buildings on this corner and I started crunching some math uh, when my friends were telling me what they were paying and I figured that this owner was, uh, was most likely making about $130,000, $140,000 after tax. Uh, I could have been way off but that was just my estimate at the time. Uh, so I was hooked at that point even though I didn't know exactly how I was going to do it. I knew I wanted to get into real estate. So um, this is my first lesson is invest in what makes sense to you. I mean, student rentals made sense to me from, from the very first time I thought about investing in real estate. And that's because I was a student and, um, you know, I kind of thought about what I lived in and then what I would have liked to have lived in. So uh, one thing I really like is that student rentals are economically hedged. I mean, case in point right now, Justin Trudeau passed, uh, passed uh, funding for, for students. I think they're getting like 900 or something dollars a month right now. Somebody can correct me if, I, if I'm not exactly bang on on that number. But uh, so basically the rent that I'm collecting from my students is, is more or less funded by the government right now, except for the international students. Uh, there's a natural turnover, which is great here in Ontario because we can increase rents. So every three years, my students turn over, I can increase rents there. Um, ideally, I want my students to stay three years and I'll, I'll talk about that more. Uh, higher cash flow typically, but it is a business. And uh, it's relatively easy to add value to student rentals. Um, basically, anything that adds income adds value. If you're dealing with the right appraiser in the right bank, you're going to be able to finance more based on that. Um, so over here on the left is sort of what, sort of like what I did live in. Uh, it wasn't that bad, but it was. It almost looked just like that in terms of the quality of materials. It just wasn't debris all over the floor. Uh, this one on the right is actually a picture from one of my. Uh, my existing student rentals right now. And that's actually the nicest one I have. Um, okay. So mortgage agent work. This is uh, back in 2010. Uh, I worked with a great mentor. So this is my now mother-in-law, Carmen. And uh, she was a real estate developer, real estate investor. And it was just like the stars aligned. I was, I was just getting to know her daughter, Jordan, who's now my wife. And uh, she mentioned that uh, her mom was a real estate investor. And I had literally just finished telling her that I wanted to be a real estate investor and I had no idea how. And uh, that was like the stars aligned. Uh, I, I ended up being a fly on the wall with Carmen. She let me sit in her office and I just listened to her make phone calls and, and uh, you know, make deals all day long. And I learned the business. Uh, and then I tried to add back to her uh, by bringing deals in. 
And um, so this brings me this brings me to my second lesson, which is uh, dive in and add value. Uh, be a fly on the wall. If somebody will let you, try and add value to them. Try and do something for them. I have several people who uh, who basically have a value add relationship with me. Um, they help me out in one way or another, and and then I you know give back to them with uh, with instruction and coaching. Um, I'm not sure that I really have any ability. Uh, if people are going to ask me that, uh, have any ability to take on any more of those right now? But it's not to say I couldn't in the future if you do want to reach out to me. Um, okay. So let's look at, uh, so my story here, my first properties I, uh, I bought in uh, 2011 and 2012. That was where I started and I bought two single family homes and then I ran out of money. And that's a classic story. Cause I was just working, 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 busting my butt, trying to raise money. Uh, I didn't even have enough money to pay my taxes after I bought these two properties. I had to, I had to pay my uh, income taxes on a line of credit. Uh, so I kind of strapped myself. Uh, so going into 2013, I actually worked out a potential JV with, uh, with a friend of mine and it was to buy a house and turn it into a duplex. And, um, so I, I found a lot that worked. I found everything worked. I, I went to city hall. I did all my research. Uh, but then the neighbors found out what I was going to do. And, uh, they actually, uh, this is a picture. I made the front page of the line of free press. Uh, all of the neighbors standing on my uh, lawn saying not in our backyard, calling me the big back to big bad developer from, uh, from Toronto, even though I was living around the corner. And, uh, basically, uh, this, w- this was a, a really, really painful blow. I ended up, um, hanging on to this property for four years for, uh, for my friend, um, and trust for him to get it, get his uh, money back. So it was a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety. And then at the same time I bought into Ohio in 2012, I bought two properties down there. This is one of them. Great looking house at the end of a dead end street. Uh, you wouldn't believe it, but I got it for $12,500 and, uh, it was too good to be true. And yeah, that's exactly true. It was too good to be true. So, uh, my property manager ended up being this little criminal right here. Uh, he took my money. Uh, he, he collected rent from my tenants and then used it to live on. He allowed the place to be destroyed. I ended up giving this property away, uh, for nothing, uh, to him, no less, uh, because otherwise I was going to have to pay to demolish it and give it back to the city. So it was a really bad scenario. Imagine having your property worth so little that you have to pay to get rid of it. And that was kind of the scenario I found myself in. So all of this kind of combined to me saying, Oh man, I'm done. Like I was, I was beaten. Uh, I was, I was defeated. And at end of 2013, early 2014, I was like, that's it. No more real estate. Um, and I probably would have stayed out if it hadn't been for a couple of really positive people in my life. One being Carmen, uh, who's just crushing it. And another being a friend of mine who's in the student rental game as well, uh, by the name of Carlo. And you know, the guy's worth like $20 million now. And it just, uh, those, those two people just being, you know, being the people they are, uh, really did help me to come out of it. Um, so I'm going to get to what, uh, what that means in the grand scheme of things. So a couple of lessons I pulled out of this, which are just life lessons. I mean, it was a university tuition. I'm, I'm still paying off the, uh, the debt from the Ohio stuff. Um, but, uh, never assume someone else is looking out for your best interest. Um, that's the big thing. Like property managers, they have to earn the right to be trusted and you can't just assume that they can be trusted. Uh, another thing, have a plan B and a plan C to go with your plan A. Like when I was in Ohio, I had no plan B and C. Like I knew that that economy in Youngstown, Ohio was, was shrinking. I knew that the population base was shrinking. Uh, it was literally one plan and one plan only. And that is literally use the house until it's worthless and then just give it away. Um, and it didn't really work well. I didn't have good, good oversight on it. Uh, I was far too green and I didn't take control of my business and that, that really hurt me. Uh, and then be around those who inspire you. That's the, uh, that's the big thing. Uh, it, like I said, I wouldn't have got back in if I hadn't gotten around and been around those people that were, were such positive influences in my life. 
Okay. So me getting back into the game. So I was watching my friend Carlo crush these student rental deals and I'm like, no, he can't have all the fun. He was making like a hundred thousand dollars flipping them. And I'm like, well, I don't really want to flip them. I want to keep them. But uh, I see, I see an opportunity here. So I uh, bought my first one. Uh, I ended up, uh, well, I ended up buying several. So I would start, I would start looking for properties in the 200 to 250 range. Uh, I can't really get that in London anymore, but you could at the time. And I was adding bedrooms. I was adding bathrooms. This one in the picture, I added an addition to the rear. Um, and I did that to several houses and I do critical ad- uh, updates like furnaces, wiring, roofs, uh, windows. You can see this property really needed windows. They were, they were uh, quite old and so was the siding. Um, so anything that adds income, uh, to the property is going to add value. Uh, and also you have to understand, like when you're trying to get a burr to appraise, you have to think about what things an appraiser is going to look for. They, they, they highly value you replacing mechanical systems, replacing old cast iron or galvanized plumbing with, with ABS and, uh, you know, and pecs. And so anything that you can do that's visibly going to show as a major upgrade to the house does add value and, and helps an appraisal uh, appraiser to justify a higher value. Uh, so I ended up buying uh, 11 properties over the next few years and I'll get into the specifics of this one. Um, so that's the same house after I'm not saying it's anything fantastic, but it was my, uh, my first kind of more significant reno. Um, and I couldn't end up refinancing that one the way the numbers worked out. There wasn't really enough margin there that I was going to be able to pull up my money. And I literally didn't have any money to leave in it. Um, because I'd fired financed it all with private money. So I was pretty highly leveraged on that one. So uh, I ended up doing in about five months, I did a $47,000 profit and I knew that things weren't going to be the same. Uh, it was things, you know, my life would sort of changed for the better at that point. Uh, so why did it work? So, you know, my main takeaways are I took, I took control of everything. I took control of my trades people. Um, I was on site every single day, uh, calling people, firing people, hiring people, uh, until I found the right one. And I was firing so many people. I probably fired 30 people off that site. Um, I controlled my financing. I found uh, a financier, uh, to, to get the financing at the beginning. And I also even helped the buyer who I found myself, by the way, uh, find financing financing as well. Uh, control the appraisers. Um, and I, I'm going to get into talking about how I did that later. Um, and then I, le- I rented that property myself. Like I was there, I was grinding it out, doing everything. And uh, because of that, it was a major success. So uh, my lesson out of all of that is once you're educated and inspired, it's time to take action. And taking action doesn't necessarily mean buying properties right now, guys, because it is an interesting time. And I'm not saying that, uh, that I think it's the, the necessarily the right time to buy properties, but I'm always open to buying properties. It's just a matter of the deal. As Austin mentioned, you know, it's got to be, it's got to be worthwhile. It, when, when there's more uncertainty, I want more compensation. Austin, how are we doing for uh, for questions? Is there anything I should ins- expand on? I can't see the chat, do, do, chat box. Andrew's appraiser system is gold. So <laughs> okay. that's a thumbs up. How did you raise capital for down payment and bounce back after the losses in 2013 with Ohio? So I had one property that had equity in it and it was like, borderline barely worked. So I secured the mortgage on that other property for the down payment. And then I got an 80% mortgage on the subject property. And then I had all construction financing, everything built into my construction mortgage. So literally everything was borrowed. And then how I paid for the stuff, I would put it on Home Depot credit card, uh, Amex credit card. I'd maxed them all out. At one point I had like $47,000 in credit card debt. Uh, So I was just constantly, like every time I got a credit card offer, I'd take it. I I would just, you know, and and I will actually give that advice. Like if you get credit card offers, take them, don't abuse them. 
take them yeah. uh, because one day they might come in very, very useful if you're in this business and you're trying to, you know, you're trying to renovate a property. Um, keep in mind, private financing is expensive. So if you're just going to put money on a credit card for a couple of, couple of months, uh, paying that interest is nothing compared to what you'll pay for legal and discharge fees on a private mortgage. So it is very useful to have that money available. You mentioned you fired approximately 30 tradespeople. Any tips or lessons learned for all of us? Also, do you manage, do you have your own employees as part of your construction business? That's where I got, I got to that. Yeah. I, I have my own, my own, sorry, my own employees now. Um, but, uh, on the first one, that first one I showed you the pictures, pictures of, no, I did not. Um, so I was hiring people off of Kijiji. <laughs> That's why I fired so many. Uh, and usually one of my first questions just being very blunt about this was what drugs are you on? Uh, and I know that sounds funny, but the type of characters that would show up to site, uh, some of them were so rough. Like I, you know, if I, that was my test, right? If, if they didn't respond well to that question, then I just said, don't come. I'm like, where do you live? What's your full name? Like, send me that. And then, and then I will send you the address of where to go. And if they hesitated at all about telling me where they lived, then I knew they're not somebody I want to bring over to my site. Uh, that's, you know, that was a kind of a reckless approach. I'm not, I'm not recommending that necessarily, but I was my own general contractor. I wasn't, I didn't hire a GC. So, uh, normally somebody with my level of understanding and, and capability at the time would have hired a GC. Uh, I knowing nothing and having only the experience of being nine years old when my dad built a house, uh, you know, decided that, that that was what I was going to do. And I decided that strategically because I knew that I wouldn't have enough profit in that deal to pay a GC. So, you know, it's not, it's going to work differently, uh, for different people, but that's just kind of where I found myself later on. I mean, out of that, I actually found a really great carpenter that's worked for me for years, uh, been a huge asset to me, made me, uh, you know, made me a lot of money and a lot of equity. Um, so we have a couple of questions popping in, but let's take them maybe closer to the end. Sure. Or, yeah. We'll ask the questions that are relevant uh, to, to what you're talking part. about. Yeah, right for each part. Yeah. For each part. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, let's, we'll handle it back that way, guys. If you have questions about what I'm presenting, we'll, we'll pause every, you know, 10 minutes or so or five, 10 minutes and we'll answer those questions and keep rolling. And then we'll answer unrelated questions at the end. Um, okay. So this is um, probably the next property I did after that last one. And I ended up getting to keep this one. So it's a good burr. So this is part of the summer of burrs for me. I, I kept uh, two, uh, two properties that created a lot of uh, equity for me. Okay, so I bought this one for 205000 My renovation and soft costs were uh, about 219000 And that's including the money I borrowed. And uh, I ended up getting a new appraisal on that property for $530,000. So when you work the numbers out, my new mortgage was 424000 on that. I, I got a new mortgage, 80% with CIBC. And uh, after subtracting off what I paid and what my renovation costs were, my actual investment on this one was zero. So this was done by August and I had already signed the offer to buy the other property I, uh, I bought. So I refied this one and closed the next one like in line um, in August. So I, I finished the next one by November. So it wasn't, wasn't just the summer, but um, basically uh, sounds better if I call it the summer of burst. But anyway, so this is the first one. Let's get into what, uh, what the cash flow was. So this one, I had it under rented at the time. Like I did, I did the model where I added um, five bedrooms, five and a half bathrooms, and I really wasn't sure what that could rent for. I didn't know what the potential was there. So I ended up renting it out for 600 a bedroom when it should have been 695. I just didn't realize that it could do that, which is a big difference across five bedrooms. Uh, so I got 
uh, $2,400 a year um, in cash flow, which was minimal, but it's uh, it was something. Mortgage pay down, I just like to figure 3%. So my mortgage is 424,000 at 3%. If you watch the podcast, listen to the podcast, you'll know why I do that. Uh, so 12,700 and uh, appreciation. I was just being conservative at the time, figuring 2%. London's done 4% uh, compounding per year since then. So it's been, it's been really nice. But so I was figuring a total return of about $25,000 on that property, which is great for something that I had $0 in. So, you know, how many of those do you have to add before you replace your current income, right? If you could do four of those and you make a hundred grand, well, there you go. Uh, Now, not all of that's cash, of course, but uh, it's still there and it's still real. Uh, So ROI on that one, you can't calculate it. It's infinity. Um, okay. So that's the, uh, the case study of the summer. I bought two properties in total, the two properties for $450,000 to purchase. And when I was all done, they were worth over a million. And, uh, I had created about $215,000 of equity there. So if I wasn't hooked already, uh, after the previous project, this is where I knew, okay, you know, this is, uh, this is the, the right path. I'm on the right path. Um, okay. So why did this one work in, in, why was I able to do this? Why, wasn't, why weren't other people doing this? Well, for one, I was seeing value that others weren't seeing or weren't willing to see. Uh, I was buying in good locations, but really small houses or houses with low basements where the average investor would look at it and say, there's no really good opportunity to, uh, to make that a five bedroom rental. And you know, if you can't get five beds, you're, you know, you're not going to maximize your value. Uh, so I was more looking at it. Okay, well, what if I were to build an addition? You know, what if I were able to open up the back of that house and add area to the house and what could I do? Uh, So that previous one I showed you, I used that as an opportunity to create something that didn't have any basement bedrooms. Uh, And students don't really like basement bedrooms. So I just saw an option opportunity to create something really premium. And I knew, you know, I'm trying to do properties that I can keep here. Uh, I want to, you know, I want to build them to be the best that they can be. Uh, so I was picking fantastic locations right near bus routes, um, which really helped me make that one, uh, rent quite easily. Um, I, again, I had a very good relationship with a mortgage specialist. I met a guy from CIBC and the way I met him is by calling other investors that I, if I saw houses that were similar to what I wanted to do, uh, they weren't like necessarily five bed and whatever, but they were clearly student rentals and they were really well done. So I called the investors. I would look these people up on, on a system called Purview. Realtors have Geo Warehouse. So if you have a realtor friend, you can get them to look them up. And I found doctors and, and lawyers and dentists. I happened to find a dentist. So I Googled his name. I found him. I called him at work and asked him who he used for his financing. So uh, this isn't complicated, guys. But uh, as Matt McKeever likes to say, uh, it is hard work. It's not complex, but it is hard work sometimes. Um, Okay. So a uh, qualified appraiser, my mortgage specialist dealt directly with his appraiser. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more later in terms of how, but it's very important to control your appraiser and make sure you don't just get some guy that, that appraises random uh, single family homes uh, for homeowners. That's not the same as investments. So it's really just about taking charge in your business. Um, effective property management and leasing. Um, that was huge for me when I was doing these burrs, I was so focused on managing my sites and managing my workers. I didn't have any time, uh, to be, uh, to be managing, uh, students at the time. And, uh, I had a very good company that would do all my leasings for me, even though I wasn't even done, they'd have my units rented out before they were even done. Uh, and then a great source of private funds. I was able to fund everything with private money. Uh, so not using the banks. I would go in because there's a lot of red tape when you use the bank. So when you can use private construction money, uh, it's a lot easier. It's a lot quicker. And yes, it's more expensive, but in my mind, it's worth it. Okay, so lesson seven. And this isn't really my advice, but this is just what I did. Um, put all your eggs in one basket and watch that basket. Uh, it's an Andrew Carnegie quote, uh, as far as I can tell. And um, 
you know, it, it just, for me, I was out of kind of a breaking point psychologically. Uh, things hadn't really uh, gone that well for me uh, before that. Uh, never really found my stride with the mortgage business. I, I think I was pretty good at it. It just wasn't my, my calling. And, um, you know, I wanted to find something that I enjoyed more on a daily basis to do. And uh, when this all happened and I, you know, I finally finished those previous uh, rentals, it, I knew my life had changed. and It was a big deal for me. It, uh, it's fun. Like this business is actually fun when you get to be creative and you get to put stuff together and see it actually pays you too. Uh, so it's rewarding in so many ways. Um, okay. So sample completed project. This is uh, the second one I did from that summer. And um, you'll notice here the bedrooms have ensuite bathrooms. So all the way down the hallway here. And this bedroom at the end, they actually have a little outline, dotted outline for a couch if they wanted to. And, um, you know, I just, I tried to give them uh, basically what they would want in a really, really awesome student rental. So um, my, my strategy was always to create something that people would be proud to tell their friends about. So people quick would, question, Andrew. Yeah. Um, this is actually very relevant to what you're talking about now. So before you were saying five mm-hmm. bedrooms at 5.5 baths, does that have negative impact on your sales price? Uh, if you want to sell it to a family in the future or anything like that? It does. Um, I, I wouldn't say necessarily negative, but you're not going to get any value out of those bathrooms, right? Like I, I've actually seen non-student houses. There's actually some in Hamilton right now that have en suites and, and all the bathrooms and uh, all the bedrooms. But yeah, I'm not saying that this is something you would want to have like your whole portfolio composed of. Um, but I, I've thought about that, you know, as a contingency plan, what would my backup be? You know, would I Airbnb it? Once Airbnb is allowed again, I think there's an incredible opportunity to Airbnb these different bedrooms out being that they are, um, they are, uh, suited with, uh, with, uh, with en suites. But, um, it's, uh, it's one of those things where I think that it's, it's just a lost opportunity. There's a lot of cost that goes into putting those bedrooms there. I mean, of course I could just close the door and lock it and then they don't have it and it's, it's neither here nor there. Uh, but yeah, generally speaking, I think it's that much more important now than ever. If you're going to do this strategy, you set that house up in a way that, uh, that it really works for all. It's going to work for families. It's going to work for students. So here's some of the, uh, some more finished products. Uh, this, uh, this particular house, I did quartz right up the, uh, the backsplash. I have a quartz waterfall countertop here, uh, vinyl plank flooring, just cause it's really durable, but all the bathrooms got quartz in them for every single bedroom. And then they get a tile surround on their bathtub. So these are full four piece bathrooms. Again, I don't want somebody saying, Oh, but I wanted a bathtub, you know, cause you know, girls like having a bathtub. Uh, it seems in my experience. Uh, so I could just do showers, but why not just do a, a bathtub with a, with a shower component? Uh, some more pictures here. Uh, I usually like to do an accent wall and uh, I include furniture in my common areas. So that furniture was provided by me. And uh, okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit about selecting a market, just kind of my, my thoughts. Uh, if you went to business school or you ever start, studied marketing, you would have heard of a pest analysis. Um, so I think it's relevant. I just want to talk about it. Um, but basically, you're going to look at things, uh, things related, aspects that affect your investment from a political, economic, social, and technological standpoint. So in our case here, political control from a rental standpoint is more about, you know, would there be political changes to maybe regulate student rentals over regular rental properties? Um, you know, that would probably be my only concern related to political. I mean, aside from our government increasing taxation and changing capital gains, but those aren't really specifically relevant to, uh, to these student rentals. But uh, mm-hmm. I would ask, you know, the question is always, can I use this property to service families? How much work, how much money would it cost if I wanted uh, to service families instead of students? And how much cash flow hit am I going to take? 
So you want to look at your numbers and maybe when you're performing sensitivity, you say, well, how much is this going to change? If something were to happen, uh, am I still going to be able to cash flow even if I'm renting to a family versus students? Uh, economic diversity. Um, is the local municipality self-sustaining or is it driven primarily by schooling? And this is very important. Uh, if your city only has schooling going on, what happens if there's a general shift away from schooling? Um, that could be very, very bad for, uh, for you in the, uh, in the long run. And then, you know, example here, like what if COVID cases uh, lead to more, uh, more online attendance in class unless people actually physically go to school? So that means physical attendance drops. A lot of the marginal student rentals might not get rented or we might see uh, just a, a supply and demand adjustment where the price of everything goes down and rents go down. So a uh, lot of things to consider there. Um, you could have called some of that social as well. But uh, okay, so social trends, um, do the programs offered uh, at the school you're marketing to, uh, are, they, are they geared towards where, where the trends are going? Uh, you know, for example, right now there's a huge demand for tradespeople, blue collar workers, you know, framers, plumbers, electricians, people who are going to have to go to trade school. Well, if, if you're investing in a city that does not have a trade school, uh, that's, you know, slightly less good than investing in a city that has both options. Um, which programs are here to stay? So if you think about your school, the one you're investing around, if they have, uh, you know, a school of medicine, if they have a law school, if they have a business school, uh, like Ivy, for instance, like it's very interactive, so it'd be hard to imagine them doing that not in person. Um, you know, so to, what is the likelihood that some of these, these classes, given this whole COVID incident, given, you know, we might have something like this happen in the future, what are the odds that, that people shift away from in-school attendance? And, uh, and on that note, technologically, you know, Gary V likes to say, uh, Gary V likes to say, you know, school's not worth it. And, you know, people could just learn it online. And I agree, people can learn pretty much anything they can learn in school online and probably a lot better with the exception of the fact that having somebody there to push you and, uh, and hold you accountable is, is pretty much what school is all about. Uh, and a lot of people just kind of need that. So, uh, but the question is, you know, will there, will there be a day when, you, you can't really justify the cost of going to school. Like, will that happen? And again, this just comes back to the point. You've got to be investing in markets. Like for me, I'm not going to invest in a city that only has a school going for it. You could have all the cash flow in the world, but if there's not other industry to support, if there's not another way I can repurpose that asset to, to service a diverse economy, um, I'm not really going to want to invest there. Like in London, I love it because we've got corporate head offices all over the place. We've got healthcare. Uh, there's so many other industries that, that are not just focused around education. So there are, there are some contingencies there and the more contingencies, the better. It just lowers your risk, but that's also why people get less cash flow in London than say in Windsor, uh, no slight to Windsor at all. I think Windsor is a great opportunity. Cash flow is higher there, uh, a little bit less diverse economically. Um, so picking the right markets. Um, so look for well-established school with a wide draw. I like international draw, like Western's got students from China, India, um, you know, Europe all over the place. Uh, I like a diversity of programs because, you know, a school that's been around since the 1800s that has law school, medicine, engineering, uh, probably isn't going anywhere. Whereas a school that just popped up 12 years ago, uh, maybe, maybe it isn't uh, tried tested and true. And, and really the only adjustment is cash flow. How much, how much higher does the return need to be to justify your risk? Uh, colleges, same thing goes. How long has it been established? I, you know, I'm being very patient right now seeing how this whole virus situation is, is affecting things. Uh, so note the program lengths and types. Here's a, a critical piece. Um, 
things are not all equal investing in student rentals for colleges versus universities colleges have a lot of shorter programs which means more turnover turnover is extremely expensive retenanting properties is expensive it includes maintenance it includes paying a rental agent so you have to factor that into your numbers how often are you expecting to tenant that property and really just in your cash flow sheet you might end up using a higher figure for management if you're if you're having to uh, turn the property over more uh, set your own requirement for cash flow and cap rate. If you're not familiar with cap rate, uh, no need to worry about that right now. Just focus on the cash flow. Uh, but it's a quick Google search away uh, in terms of if you want to understand cap rate. And I'll show you on the spreadsheet at the end of this presentation um, when I pull it out. Um, okay, so know your target demographic. Who are you going after? And this is very important. You, you need to know who you're trying to reach. For me, uh, I have a very specific person I'm trying to reach and I'll talk to you about that as we go through. But are you targeting Canadians? Are you targeting international students? Are you targeting new to Canada? Uh, do you have a specific income level that you're targeting? For me, I'm targeting uh, wealthy kids that come from wealthy families that have uh, parents that would have paid for them to go to private school. So I have many kids that went to private schools uh, in, my, in my student rentals. And the whole point of that is these are people that, uh, that have parents that are willing to pay a little bit extra so their kids can have more. And uh, that's, that's exactly what I want because I'm not the bottom price. I'm, I'm definitely a more than the bottom price in terms of uh, what, the, what the market has out there. Uh, so what are their expectations? Do they want a furnished rental? Do they want internet? Some, some markets, you have to provide internet. Some you don't. Um, you need to do the research. And the best way to do that research is speak with your network, speak with fellow investors, speak with property managers. And if you don't have any of those connections, uh, you know, meetup.com, try and find them. Uh, you know, if you're in this network, oh. odds are you can find somebody who knows somebody. Uh, we got somebody without a, a muted, uh, sorry, a muted um, hey, microphone. Yes, he is. And I asked you to put the cream on Marcus. I didn't hear you. I, did, I, didn't hear I you. think you can mute him. Actually, I can mute him. You can mute, yeah. I'm not a host anymore. Oh, <laughs> I, I guess when I gave you the powers, I lost mine. Oh, okay. Do I need to admit anybody here? I, <laughs> I'm just I had a couple people message me. Anyway, like all of this is recorded, guys. So everything will yeah. be on YouTube after. Um, all of this content is like absolutely free. Yeah. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, we got a few. So admit, admit, admit. There's an admit all. Oh my god. Oh fuck me. <laughs> okay, you should have done time. that. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Okay. I'll just keep this little window open now that I found it. Um, okay. Cool. Okay. So we've got uh, 105 people in here, and uh, oh, I found the chat too. This is this is fantastic. Um, Okay, we have Austin, a lot of questions, but uh, Austin, do we want to pause and do a quick question? Uh, sure, sure. Yeah, so, do you want any? Yeah, I'll, I'll start from the top of. Um, let's see. A lot of mortgage companies won't touch student rentals. What are your thoughts on it? Uh, okay, so I'm going to have a whole section on that. So okay. we'll we'll get there. Okay, let, um, next one. You were quickly mentioning about renovations and how mechanicals are extremely important. What type of non-lipstick renos can you do to increase the appraisal? Non-lipstick. So I think you kind of touched on that, but maybe reiterate. Yeah, like the key thing is when you do it, like have the invoices when you go, uh, especially if you spend a lot of money, when, when you meet the appraiser, show them like, 
we're talking electrical wiring, if you had ungrounded wiring or if you had aluminum wiring or anything like that, if you pigtailed it, um, if you replaced the service, um, if you uh, if furnace, AC, those, those things all have a life cycle. Um, windows, technically a life cycle item. So if, if the appraiser sees you did this, now you've refreshed the house. Now the house is, is almost new again. Uh, so uh, plumbing is another big one because eventually cast iron plumbing will leak. So if you replace it with ABS, uh, again, these are things that, especially a lot of appraisers don't, don't even fully understand what it is and it's no slight to them but when they hear you say it they know they've heard other people say that's good and they say they start to feel better about about giving you a higher appraisal value and especially if you can show them that you spent a lot of money they feel far more justified in giving you a higher appraisal um how does the mortgage stress test affect your mortgages on multiple properties maybe we can touch at that after um, or unless you want to go yeah, for it now. Um, you know, the biggest thing, it makes it a hell of a lot harder. Like CIBC used to be my go-to and that was when they would use the market rate to qualify me. So if it was like 3% or, you know, 2.69%, I'm going to show like one of my mortgages, I was able to get a full 80%. And now, now they're, oh uh, they're cutting me back to the point where I'm getting, uh, where I'm basically getting, uh, you know, 65%. So it's a game changer. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get into some of, some of the specifics with that, but it, it has a pretty nasty effect to be, to be quite blunt. And maybe one more before we continue on and we'll ask the rest later, which, okay. So you were talking about trades before, um, which trade do you hire as your first employee, the carpenter? Question um, well, yeah, I mean, you're looking for a skill set. Um, I would say your first employee, you're going to want somebody that's very universally handy, very intelligent, uh, a problem solver, um, hopefully has some leadership skills so they can be your site supervisor as well. Uh, that's a big thing. Uh, somebody that can kind of run the show for you because if you don't know who your site supervisor is, it's you. And if you don't want to be on site, um, that's, uh, you know, being on site every day is a full-time job. So uh, it, it's something to be very careful of. Um, do we want to do any more here? Uh, somebody no, asked can... about, about the vinyl floor I use. I use a Boliu product from um, a company called Great Floors. I got a contact if, uh, if, um, if someone wants to message me or just reach out to me on Instagram. I can put you in touch, give you the guys contact. Okay, anything else you... or should we just keep going? I'll uh, let you, you, you can kind of compile some questions if you want um, and we'll, we'll pause in another couple minutes. Sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we'll just continue okay. going for now. All right. So, uh, speak with, uh, local investors. Can't stress that enough. Uh, they're, they're your, your lifeline. Um, you know, they're going to, they're going to help solve, solve those, those unknowns for you. Uh, and rather than recreate the wheel and go through all the pain yourself of making mistakes, you can just ask them. Okay. So picking the right locations, um, Again, you're going to have to ask, ask around, even if you've got to put out dummy ads on Kijiji and Facebook and Western off-campus housing or whatever off-campus housing for the school you invest at is, um, see what, what feedback you get. Do you get a lot of inquiries? If you price the same as others, where do you, you know, how, what are other people in your area pricing, uh, pricing at? And I will say, don't take that too much to heart because I've priced consistently quite far above, um, all my competition. And that's kind of been my game, but, uh, that's okay. You, you can definitely get away with that as long as you're providing value, giving them something to pay for. So a uh, good place to start is primary transit route. Uh, in London, uh, we've got two primary transit routes that are really relevant. So you've got Warncliffe road, which turns into Western road, which my cursor is on right now. We're just, and this is the university right here. So this is that one line. So you can pretty much be within a four minute walk of anywhere on that road within reason, you know, going down to about Riverside for anybody who knows that. Um, 
and you're okay. The other transit route is Richmond Street, and you can pretty much, again, be anywhere within a four or five minute walk to a bus stop on that street, and you are pretty much good to be a student rental. Now, the question is how far you are will dictate what kind of price you're going to get, um, and then how far you are from the bus stop. Like, you could be further away, but if you're only a one minute walk to the bus stop, you probably would get rented faster than somebody who's half the distance away, but a six minute walk. So, uh, it really is, uh, it really is relevant. And again, you don't know unless you speak with your property manager, you speak with your, your, uh, tenants, you speak with, Hey, you know, what do you like? What don't you like? Or what would you improve here? Um, there's also a market for downtown rentals. And I imagine other university cities are like this as well. Uh, but I lived downtown right after I graduated and I loved it. And I have a, a student rental downtown. Uh, it doesn't make any logical sense at all. They have to walk further to get to the bus stop. Uh, it's really just good for nightlife and partiers. So you do kind of attract a different tenant down there. So that's the only thing that I don't love. Uh, but, uh, it's a fantastic location, uh, to be downtown and a lot of students demand it. Um, okay. So how long does it take to walk to the bus stop? It's something you're going to want to be very familiar with before you buy uh, total time door to door. These are critical and, and these are marketing pieces. So for instance, you might even want to take a picture of your Google maps, uh, walking map. And this is one of my properties one minute away from the bus stop. Exactly. 110 meters. And on, when I'm marketing this one, I literally just go out on the porch and, and point and say, see, we're, you know, the bus stops right there. And, uh, it makes it a lot easier to rent that property. And if you, if you were trying to market this property, I would probably put this in the photos of the listing. So people knew just how close that is. Um, and it's really going to help you to get people, uh, to, uh, to come out for the property, even if it's a little further away, as long as you can get to the bus. So at Western people take the bus, their bus, their bus passes included in tuition. Not every university is going to be like that. So again, you want to feel out the culture uh, for your local school and, and see if that's, uh, that's something that's, that's common at your school as well. Um, okay. So a couple of pictures of some of the renovations I've done. Uh, and if you want to follow me, these are just Insta pro, Insta posts. So I, I haven't been keeping on my game lately posting this stuff, but I have a ton of stuff. If you go back, you can see different projects I've worked on, um, at the Andrew Hines on Instagram. Um, so that's a loft that I finished. Uh, this is an addition I built. So you can kind of see the construction type I do. So this is a heated crawl space. Um, this was a self-contained two bedroom, two bath unit and, uh, featuring heated crawl space, about 920 square feet, really cool project turned out really nice on the inside. That one's actually not a student rental, uh, but it was a keeper for me. And, um, I'll, uh, you know, just wanted to give you an idea of the type of renovations that I've done. So we'll keep moving forward here. Um, okay. So building your team. So you have two main options. You can use a good general contractor or you can become one. Really, there's no two ways around that. Uh, so if you're going to become uh, a general contractor, uh, you're going to save some money potentially and you're going to make some make mistakes that cost you some money potentially. So uh, there is a trade-off there, but it's a learning uh, process. And if, if that's the path you want to go down and you're planning to do this long-term, it might just make sense. Um, if you're going to do any of it, you just want to make sure you're leveraging your network. So uh, the Rise Network here, I'm sure there are probably uh, through one or two degrees of separation, like a hundred contractors that you could make connections with uh, that would be you know, a major asset to your team. I do not recommend hiring trades without a proven track record. I told you how many people I had to fire. Uh, if you're not keeping the closest eye on it ever, um, you, could, you could find yourself in a lot of hot water. Um, and I have, from speaking from experience. So uh, being your own GC, um, I, I only recommend doing this if you think you have a reason to be successful for it or if you see the value in investing the time and energy into learning this skill uh, as a kind of a life skill and maybe even start your own construction company like I did to service yourself and then, of course, uh, maybe even helps other people as well. Uh, 
so uh, build relationships with each trade if you do this. So if you're like me, uh, you know, try and be fair with everyone. I was on site every single day, but I was making connections and I've kept multiple connections that I met from that first project. Um, ensure that you have a site supervisor. Like I said, if you don't know who it is, it's you. Um, I was at a point where I'd be driving to the hardware store and then I'd drive back to site and they'd tell me, oh, we need this. And I'd drive away and then I'd drive back to site. And then I was literally just driving all day doing running errands. Uh, don't be that person. Like that's, that's just a, that's not worth the gray hairs that you'll get uh, for, for doing that. Uh, if you hire a competent site supervisor, they can make lists of things that are needed and you can order those things on the phone. They get delivered to site. There's a way to do it properly and there's a way to do it uh, horribly wrong. And uh, you don't want to do it the wrong way. So uh, use milestones instead of deposits. Uh, I had multiple people I've worked with over the years ask me for deposits. Oh, we take a $2,500 deposit or $5,000 deposit, then we'll start. My answer has been a firm, sorry, I can't do that uh, because I did that in Ohio and I, I lost uh, an incredible amount of money. And, uh, you, know, I, you know, I don't even say it in exactly those words, but I just say because of experience, because of past problems with that, I can't do that. But here's what I can do. We can do milestones. I will pay you every week. You do value, I'll pay you. I'll pay you in partial installments. I have no problem paying you frequently, uh, but I, I can't give a deposit. If they need materials, provide them yourself. Bring them to site yourself. Um, I, I strongly, strongly advise against uh, giving money up front unless you have an extending relationship with that person and you have a lot of trust there already. Even then, I don't like it. It's just an unnecessary thing to do. Uh, people should have their stuff together enough and enough trust that they can start working for you without, without requiring a, a deposit, in my opinion. Uh, so be fair and pay fast. Uh, that's the biggest thing. Like, way to a contractor's heart, pay them fast. The second they're done, they send you the invoice, send them an e-transfer right away. If you're that person, they will just perk right up and say, hey, Andrew, you got any other projects going on? You know, yeah, we love working for you. You're great. Uh, be the customer that your trades love to work with. Uh, don't try and nickel and dime them at the end or anything like that. Uh, a lot of people have it in their head that, that trades people are just desperate for work. No, good trades people have a lot of people that want them to work for them. Uh, so if you're the jerk that always nickels and dimes them, they're just going to say enough with you and you won't have a repeat uh, tradesperson, which will cost you a lot more than it saves you. Uh, okay, so hiring a GC. If you are going to hire a GC, here's what I recommend doing. Uh, search your network number one. We've got so many in our network. Uh, I've met so many and this is all after I kind of became my own GC, but I talked to these people, you know, we're all in this business. Um, so there's lots in our networks. Um, but if you can't find one in your specific area, ask around, go to local meetups, find out who other people are using. You always want to get references. If you can't get a direct reference from somebody else who's used it, then the next step is to drive around the neighborhoods of where you, uh, you want to do a project and find somebody doing work on a house, go up to those houses, find the contractors doing work, find out who they are, get references, find out who owned the house that you went up to and call them and ask them what they think of that person. And here are some questions you can ask them. Again, guys, this isn't rocket science, but it is hard work. Finding that those answers, totally doable, but it might be hard work at first. But this is about building a team. Building a team is kind of a pain in the butt. But uh, once you do it, you can just reuse it, reuse it, reuse it again. Um, so um, how have disagreements been handled? Uh, have they stuck to budget? Are they professional? How is their pricing? How is their timing? Um, are they delivering as promised and correctly? And are there areas for improvement? And there always are. So it's just a really good idea to, uh, to make sure that you are asking these questions. Austin, are you... Uh, so we are still recording. Um, Everything's being okay. recorded, yeah. Okay, perfect. Yeah, I know you handed control over to me, so I don't know if that changed, but it's probably uh, recording to the cloud, right? Yes, yeah. that's correct. 
Okay. Uh, use a detailed scope of work. It's not enough to have an email saying, Hey, we can do the job for 50,000. What's included. You know, if you're using vinyl plank flooring, there's $5 vinyl plank and there's, you know, $2 vinyl plank. And one is vastly superior and going to last way longer. Uh, so you need a detailed scope of work if you're going to use a GC. It's, it's just not enough uh, to take somebody on their word, again, unless uh, they have a sparkling track record of working for everybody under the sun and you can see exactly what they do. Even then, it's still a risk. You know, proceed at your own, your own, uh, your own caution. But, uh, um, you know, on that note, nothing I say here tonight, guys, is advice. Always make your own decisions. Always consult your own investment advisors. Uh, I'm just telling you my experience. Okay, so renovating for success and being effective, part of that is your offer process. Because if you, if you structure your offer pro- properly, you can avoid wasting time. And time is money when you're in renovations because renovations, you're carrying a property, you're usually paying for money. Uh, in my case, I'm paying for expensive private money. And I don't want to be waiting two months for a permit. I want to be able to close that property and start the next day. And by doing the things that I'm about to show you, I've been able to have a permit in hand before I even close the property. And I've done that many times. And how do you do that? Well, you write it into your offer. You write into your offer that you have the ability to apply for a permit prior to closing the property for work to, to happen after closing the property. Um, so I, I always include that. And then I also include a term that says I have access to the house before closing a set number of times. Usually I'll try and sneak it through that. I have as many as I time, as many as I want, uh, as long as I give reasonable notice, you know, 24 hours. And, uh, usually people don't have a problem with that, which is surprising. Sometimes they do. They're like, no, you got to limit it, but it's usually the realtor that does that. It's not the person. It's the realtor that's, uh, that's asking for the limit. Uh, so those are the two things I do and, uh, always work with an engineer or a qualified designer. I work with an engineer that has his own designers. So they do everything in house. I've had a relationship with him for five years. Uh, and, uh, we just have such a give and take relationship. He's such a valuable asset on my team. Uh, and you know, again, just getting back to that point of how valuable it is to, uh, to, to, uh, nurture that team. Okay. So the renovation. Uh, focus on value add renovations, focus on things that add value. And like I said, uh, things that add income indisputably add value. Uh, so bedrooms and bathrooms when done tastefully are a good idea, but it is not a good idea to go stealing your common area space so that you can add a seventh bedroom. Uh, I want you to keep in mind that it's easier to rent a three bedroom than it is to rent a five bedroom. And it's easier to rent a five bedroom than it is to rent a seven bedroom. So the more bedrooms you have, the harder it is to rent. Um, and, and think about the logic of it. Why would it be harder to rent a seven bedroom? Well, you're, you're asking seven people to live together and that they all like each other enough that they're okay with that. Um, what types of things would you need to compensate for to get that to happen? Well, one would be having bedrooms that have bathrooms in them. That helps. That's going to make it more likely really big common areas, maybe a second kitchen, you know, things like that, that just kind of help divide up the space. But, uh, that being said, like the most bedrooms I have in anything is a six and um, that happens to be in a, in a dynamite location, so it's easy to rent. But I wouldn't want a six that wasn't in a, in a really awesome location. It would be hard to rent. Um, so remember your target tenant. What do they want? And don't ever go against that. Make your decisions based on who you're trying to serve. If you're, if you're going after a high-income tenant, they want better value. They, they want better quality than somebody who's going for the cheapest price. And you have to give it to them. Otherwise, uh, you're kind of wasting your money and wasting your time. 
Okay, so when you're renting your project, as I mentioned, I do it based on blueprints, get good virtual tours of your first property, and you can use that to rent your next property. You just say, hey, I'm building another one. Here's the floor plan. Here's one I just finished. You can go see the one I just finished and the one I'm working on. I'll show you the studs. We can't walk in, but I'll open the door. Or if they, you know, I'll give you a hard hat and, and boots if you really want to walk around. But usually just with the floor plan, yeah, you can you can do it. I've actually walked people through a house that I just took possession from possession of it was stinky moldy uh like gross dark dingy and um i i charged a premium rent in a non-premium location based on walking them through a gungy old house because i had a, a set of blueprints in my hand showing them what i was going to do and i showed them another property that not I, I didn't do i showed them another property that my friend had done and uh, I'm like, see this, this is what we're going to do. I, I took them all over in my car and showed them the property. And, uh, you know, it's just about selling, right? If you sell with enthusiasm and, and be a genuinely nice person in this process, deliver on what you say you're going to deliver and don't misrepresent anything. Uh, and, and you should have no problem with that in that process. Um, all names on one lease. Uh, this is coming from my experience as a mortgage agent, from every lender I've ever talked to. Uh, also from bylaw conformance. If you're not all names on one lease, then technically you're operating as a rooming house. And uh, not only will that uh, put the bank off, most likely, but it'll also be in breach of the bylaws unless you're zoned for that, unless you're, you have that status. Uh, so maximize your rents. If you have to give away a free TV or a free couch to get an extra hundred bucks or an extra few hundred dollars in rent, do it. Because the bank looks at your income to decide how much mortgage they're going to give you. So buying your, your tenants a TV, if they'll you know, pay you an extra hundred bucks a month, it, it pays for itself. In my mind, it's, it's well worth it because they're not going to move over a hundred bucks extra a month. Uh, I, I'm saying that as a house, you could probably get like 150 or 200 as a house, uh, maybe for doing something like that. You'll have to, you have to feel it out, but try the different things that you can do that can maximize rent. Uh, make sure your leases end on an appropriate date for your school. So at, at Western April 30th is the day. Uh, so you want your new lease to start May 1st, April 30th, it ends. Uh, other important dates are people start looking for their new house in October, September, even. So think of like by the end of September, people like first years are just getting to school and they're already meeting groups and they're starting to look by the end of September. It's crazy how early uh, people look at Western. I don't know if every school's like that, but Western, uh, Western is. Um, and you need to be aware of that. Like if you miss those dates, you lose opportunity to, to get premium rents. Uh, get parental guarantors. There's absolutely no reason not to. They expect it. Uh, a lot of students expect it. Uh, especially in the echelon of students I go after. Uh, if you're going after a student with you know, well-to-do families that, that have a higher income, uh, they're, they're generally willing to pay and they're willing to, to guarantor as well. Uh, use a quality appendix or addendum document. So the Ontario lease, let's face it, it sucks. Um, it doesn't protect you as a landlord. Austin, do you have something you use, like a, an addendum that you use for your lease? Yeah, yeah. It's like a one or two pager. Okay. Yeah. I have one that I got from Harry Fine. It's like 13 pager. <laughs> oh, <shit. laughs> you probably don't need, need one that big, but uh, yeah, Harry offers that. If, and, and I don't get paid to promote that, but I thought it was a pretty good package. It's a little harsh. I actually took some of the terminology out of it because it was like, wow, that's scary. Uh, scary for the tenant signing. Um, so anyways, um, I'll keep going here. Uh, so getting into the burr, uh, the refinance. So you want to work with somebody with a track record that's actually doing deals now. Um, somebody who's actually doing you know, student rentals on the regular. Don't go work with somebody who, uh, who says they can, who says, yeah, we should be able to do that. No, you want to, you want to call up the guy that just refinanced one or talk to the guy in your network that just refinanced one and ask who they used. 
and, and who's doing it in your area? Because if you know the person who's doing it in your area, they know the appraiser, the appraisers in your area, and they probably have a crafty little trick to make sure that that appraiser gets the deal. If you work with smart, capable people who, who specialize, you'll find that type of scenario. And it can be the difference between, uh, you know, having a deal that you can't even finance you know, your renovation costs out of to having a deal where you can finance everything, your down payment, your renovation costs out of it at the end and then do another deal. So it's very, very significant. Uh, you know what, just before I keep going, I'm going to just look through these questions real quick. Austin, yeah, you got a lot of questions. They're building up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, to, to, to where did we leave off? Where did we leave off? I got a, where, how does we already answered the carpenter one i think that was where we left off so the next question would be what are the top few qualifications a property has to meet before you purchase obviously things like one percent rule uh having the specific cash on cash return so i'm sure you have like a minimum any other yeah. criteria you personally use to determine what you what you want to purchase well assuming i'm in in a market that i i like yeah um I'm, I'm looking for, you know, the burr obviously. So I'm looking for a, for a deal where I can pull most, if not all of my money out. And if I can't, then the other strategy I've used, um, is to basically look at that deal and say, if I were to privately finance my entire down payment, like say I was to put a private mortgage on one of my other houses. And if I were to finance the entire down payment, could I still cash flow a few hundred bucks? And I ideally would still want to cash flow, like say 300 bucks. If I could do that, I'm still into that deal. So I'm always looking for the strategy where I can get in with no money down because I want to keep building, keep growing. Um, not to say that I'm right. That's just my preference, right? That like everyone's going to have their own criteria, their own preference. Like some people just have, have 200K sitting on hand, ready to put into a long-term hold. If that's you, then there's a lot of deals that could probably make sense, uh, especially with that kind of a down payment. I'm actually going to pull out the spreadsheet at the end of this and we can just go through some scenarios and, and kind of ask some questions and, um, and talk about that. So perfect. Um, hello, Andrew. How did you learn about creating these building layouts? So you touched on it a bit, right? So maybe you yeah. can reiterate. So have your engineer, um, somebody who like talk to your network, find somebody in your area that, that, uh, is creative like that. Cause they need to have an ability to come into a space and see, see what it could be. So, uh, the company I use out of London, they, they basically, I'll call them up. They'll come in, they'll, they'll do the measurements to measure up the existing layout. They take that back to the office and then they, they send me a bunch of options and I say, no, that won't work. No, that won't work. Okay. This is what, this is, this is the one. So, uh, sometimes, they have good ideas. Sometimes they don't. And we just work through it. And then once they finalize the layout that will work, then they engineer it. Once I give them the, okay, they'll engineer it. Sometimes they would jump the gun and just engineer it ahead of time. I'm like, guys, why'd you do that? Like <laughs> we should just wait until I, I say that I actually like this. Uh, but generally speaking, like I just left it up to them and they just created a great layout. So that's what happens when you, when you work with uh, professionals. So did you require permits? Like, are you, are you um, doing permits? Yeah. Anything that needed, needed a permit, got a permit. Gotcha. You're a good man. Um, <laughs> if, okay, so Victoria's uh, an architect, so you guys can reach out to her if you need help with design. Uh, McMaster announced only fall semester will be online 70% of their classes, while the other 30% is hands-on. Mohawk is planning for in-class and hasn't made any announcements on virtual education. Um, I think Windsor has already uh, canceled the, yeah. uh, the fall, right? They're, they're, they're going to be online. They're going to be online. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't heard anything from Western yet. I think, well, actually I'm not sure if all universities would follow suit possibly. Um, they probably will. Uh, I just, that's another rant we can get onto entirely. How can you shop for well, not for a well-knowledge appraiser? 
I, I would start with the lenders. Um, like if you're, if you're clear on what you're trying to do, you can, you can always find the answers. Go to the neighborhoods you want to, you want to invest in. Why do you want to invest in there? What do you like? You surely you saw a couple of houses that, that looked right to you. Uh, go find a realtor friend, look them up, find out who they are, <laughs> track them down and call them, find, you know, find out their story. If not, just go to your local meetups and hopefully you bump into some of those people. Uh, but that's how I did it. I just kept, you know, I, I, I was very location specific. Go to your neighborhoods, find out who's financing those properties because that's your answer. Yeah, that, that's, they're the ones that can do it. Do you use wholesalers and what city are you investing in? So, um, so London, I had, right? yeah, I'm, a, I'm like primarily London. Um, not that I wouldn't use a wholesaler. Absolutely. I would, but everything I, I seem to find, like it hasn't really catered to my student market. Mm-hmm. Uh, but absolutely. If people were wholesaling properties in the areas that I liked, um, yeah, absolutely. I just feel like in London near the university, everybody knows what they got. So it's, it's, it's harder to find, uh, find a real deal. The, the guys wholesaling in London tend to be in the uh, lower East end, uh, like along Hamilton road where, you know, that I was a, typically a stigma area, but now, you know, it's revitalizing all the East end is revitalizing. So there's a lot of good deals, but it's, uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's definitely still a good value. Andrew, is the appraisal for refi, you saying, uh, wait, what is that? Oh, okay, so he's basically, he or she's basically asking um, with the appraisal, when you talk to, like, with an appraiser, are you saying the fixes or is the mortgage broker saying the fixes? That's what no, I'm getting no. out of the question. I go and meet the appraiser on site. Like, meet them, talk to them, shake their hands, um, walk them through everything you did. And then the other thing you do is you, um, you, you do your research ahead of time, know what your competition has done, know what the other properties have sold for, because the appraiser might not necessarily know. In my case, a lot of the comparable properties didn't sell on the market. So, uh, they wouldn't be, they wouldn't function as comparables for an appraiser. They're not going to see those pop up. But if I know about the property and know what it is, I can bring that data and I can share that with the, uh, the appraiser and say, Hey, you know, that house just there sold for 600 and the appraiser would be like, it did. Uh, yeah. I'm like, yeah. And it only had four bedrooms and you know, mine has five. I'm just curious. Like, what do you think? You know, if that one's worth six, what's mine going to be worth, you know, seeing as I've done all this work and that appraiser might've been thinking in the four hundreds and now I just anchored him or her into the six hundreds. And, uh, that can be very valuable. Uh, don't think that what you say and do when you meet an appraiser doesn't have an impact. It absolutely does. And we'll just end off with one more question, then we'll continue and answer the ones a bit later. Can a GC normally be the site supervisor as well? Yeah, um, a lot of GCs will, or they'll have somebody that works for them that'll be the site supervisor. Like guys, it, like what I was talking about with site supervisor, that's really only relevant if you're if you're going to manage it yourself. If you're working with a general contractor, they're going to have their own employee that that handles site related issues, um, and and that general contractor is going to sub to other people, but they'll kind of handle it all and make sure it all flows. If they're doing a good job, that's what they'll do. Okay, so we'll keep mo- keep moving here. All right. Uh, so know your lender before buying. Like I, I say this because, sorry, <laughs> uh, I, I say this because uh, I would buy with like private money. So I've used pro funds for, for private money. They set me up with construction financing, all that. Uh, and then I've also used uh, like other sources, just like hard money lenders. Um, and uh, basically like, I just like to know who I'm going to use for my financing before I even get into the, into the, uh, the investment. And, uh, 
it, it's really critical like that you know what's what's my game plan have my have your network in place have the people you're going to use in place and that's what i mean like you drive around that neighborhood before you even get started and you make those calls and you, you make sure that you know who your team is. Uh, so control your appraisal, like I said, it can be done. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. Um, show your appraiser the comparables. We were just talking about that. And uh, I just did want to mention there is a bit of an overall tightening in Austin. You've probably noticed it too. Um, you know, banks are cracking down a little in the current situation, um, especially on the commercial side, because a lot of commercial lenders are getting burned right now because all these commercial businesses can't, uh, can't operate. So they're, you know, they're, they're losing money, um, and defaulting to a certain degree, but the, you know, the government's coming out with some, some, uh, options there, but I, I have noticed, I've heard, you know, some feedback, you know, some lenders just, mm-hmm. they used to do 75% loan to value and now they're down to 65% and they're just, they're just kind of, uh, pulling it back. Uh, it's not to say that that deals aren't still happening because they absolutely are. Um, and even on the residential side, they're still doing 80% loan to value. I've just, you know, general feedback I've got is people are a little slower. Um, so, uh, just on the, okay. So controlling your appraisal, I'm just going to explain this now. So how this works is basically appraisals go through a brokering system. I think I actually have this on my, uh, I have no, this is coming up. I'll save it. Um, okay. So, so your options are for financing. Um, you basically have your regular banks, your TD Canada trust, your BMO, your Scotiabank, uh, they'll do your 80% loan to value, your 30 year amortizations. But the problem is they don't like student rentals. They don't like student rentals. So I'm sure anyone who's tried has probably got that feedback. No, (laughs) we don't do student rentals. Uh, I used to think it was impossible to do student rentals, uh, but that's why you drive around the neighborhoods and you find out how they're getting it done. And and generally speaking, on this side of lending, they're pretty much just sneaking through the cracks. Like they're just slipping through. There are certain ways that you can disguise student rentals so that they still go through as regular rentals. And, And to the best of my knowledge, that's how they're getting done. Um, not that that's a, you know, not, not the most sustainable thing, uh, when you know that that's what's happening. So that's why it's good that there are other options. Uh, so the other options are commercial lending. So those same banks, BMO, TD, Scotiabank, if you walked into that branch and you said, can I speak with commercial lending? They would probably give you a business card and a phone number that would be different from the main bank. And now you call in and, and now you're dealing with somebody who loves student rentals and, and they have no limit to how many properties you can buy. And, uh, the only caveat is they're going to treat you like a business. So they're going to give you 70 to 75% loan to value instead of 80, uh, no limit to the number of doors. In fact, they like it when you have more, uh, as long as you're following their guidelines. Um, they care more about the business than they do about you, the applicant, more about the property than they do you, the applicant. Um, they're looking for a debt coverage ratio and I'll show you how that works at the end. Um, but it's basically, they're looking for 1.2 times to one, um, your operating income versus your mortgage service. So there's 20% money left over. Uh, Higher interest rates typically and shorter amortization. So it's going to make it harder to cash flow, which means you need to get better deals and, uh, or you need to take lower loan to values and come in with more money. So a couple of options there, Uh, but it is possible. It is doable. So credit unions are the hybrid of the two. So if you go into credit unions, they are, um, they're willing to basically do what commercial lenders will do, but they have a little bit more flexibility uh, they don't have a minimum number of doors. Usually to work with a commercial lender, um, even if it's residential properties, they'll still take you. So commercial lending will do residential properties, but they call it multi-residential. And that's when you're five or more doors. And that could be across five different properties, but as long as you've got that, they'll work with you. 
on the credit union side, they don't have that restriction. So they'll still work with you, even if you don't have five doors, even if you're just on one and they'll look at you like you're a business. So they'll give you the 75% loan to value and they'll give you the higher interest rate. But even if you wouldn't traditionally qualify or you couldn't finance a student rental, those credit unions will still look at you and not all credit unions are the same, but there are several out there that will do these deals. Uh, okay. So controlling your appraisal. I knew I had a slide on this. Okay. So in commercial lending, you can pick your own appraisal and it doesn't matter. Like you don't even have to hide that. You can just call up whatever appraisal you want and get it directed to the bank. So that's fantastic. Uh, it's just good news. Um, on the residential side, you, uh, you go through a system that basically brokers your appraisal. So there's, there's a couple of different companies that, that act as these brokers. And I don't know officially what they call them, but Nationwide Appraisal Service is one. Solidify is another. FCT, First Canadian Title, they do a bunch of different things, but they're one of them. And uh, basically, so when, you, when your broker or when your lender hits submit, that appraisal request goes into a pool and then it gets randomly assigned to an appraiser or the appraiser picks it up. And I don't know if they all work the same or if this even still works, but I hear people still doing this and uh, where there's a will, there's a way. But basically my lender would just call the appraiser. He'd say, Hey, Drew, uh, I'm about to hit submit. Can you pick up this appraisal? And, and he'd hit submit and the appraiser picks it up. And now, you know, you've got somebody who actually knows your product, your investment product, uh, and is not just Joe home appraiser, uh, that doesn't know, uh, student rental investments. So to add on to that, I think your broker can choose the company. I'm not sure about the direct phone call to the person, but likely if they choose the company, hopefully um, everyone who works there kind of appraises the same. Well, my, my experience with, with NAS, for instance, I, when I used to work in brokering, I would submit appraisals with NAS and they would mask the appraiser's name. I couldn't even find out who I was dealing with. It was like appraiser anonymous and a number and uh, you couldn't even know who they are. And then it was like Kijiji. If they tried to type their email address, it would mask it. You couldn't see it. And so, um, what you have to do is, uh, I think it's, you know, if, if you can't absolutely can't find a lender that can do it for you, then you, you network and you try and find a good appraiser that understands it and you get that appraiser's direct contact. And it's more about directing that appraiser to pick it up. So, I mean, assuming it goes into a pool and it isn't directly assigned. So again, guys, like I don't know specifically, I haven't seen specifically inside of these. All I know is I've seen it happening. So in some way or another, people are able to control their appraisal. Um, and uh, if you can find the people that can do it, you're, uh, you're off to the races. Big thing there would be if you're just working with people who are having a lot of success, odds are they have an angle on this. Um, so you don't need to get too into the weeds with that, hopefully. Um, okay. So find a, find somebody key is having a relationship, uh, as is with so many things. Uh, you can refuse an appraiser if you think they're really unqualified, uh, but you're probably going to tick some people off. So just, you know, I've never actually done it myself, but a friend of mine has, uh, and I've heard of it happening elsewhere, but you got to be careful. Uh, you got to be careful with that. So, uh, worst case scenario, if you absolutely just don't, don't have confidence that the appraisal is going to go well after you have a few conversations with this person, uh, you could potentially, um, request that a different appraiser be, uh, be assigned. So know your comparables. Again, I already spoke about this. Make sure you know your comparables, guys. This is your business. You need to know what stuff is selling for. You need to know your neighborhood better than the appraiser knows it. You absolutely do. Um, okay. Property management. I'm going to try and go through this relatively quickly. So if you're hiring external property management, I've done both. I've managed myself and hired externally. Uh, so I'm going to go through the pros and cons of each. So if you're hiring external systems are already in place, uh, there's significant uh, access to pr- prospective tenants. So if you've got a property manager that's showing hundreds of units, they have all the extra kids, you know, three kids from this group and two kids from this group that they can combine to make a, a full unit. So it uh, could be really useful. 
And, uh, you know, it, it's obviously an asset. It, it helps speed things up. The other thing I really like is they have payment collection. So uh, the manager I was working with, they did direct withdrawal on the students and they direct deposited money into my account. So I just got you know, slammed full, full payment, full payment, uh, which was great. Uh, it comes in like a, you know, a handful of days after the first of the month. The problem is when you work with a management company, you're one of many. They can't prioritize you. Their, their priority is their business, not you. Uh, you're just a part of their business and you're not in control. And those of you who have listened to my podcast know I'm a bit of a control freak. And that's just because of what's happened, right? Like, I mean, you have enough bad things happen. You're like, okay, well, I'm going to have to control my business uh, so I don't keep getting burned. And uh, so self-managing, you're in complete control, but you're in complete control of your own mistakes too, and you can make them. Uh, You get to know the whole process, and the more you know the process, the more you're able to react when things happen. You know, uh, if, if, you know, tenants are saying your price is too high, uh, you'll have a direct finger on the pulse there to know and be able to respond and react. Um, There's far more profit in the long run if you do it this way. I do believe that. But I, do, I don't believe in doing things all yourself. Like you have to create systems and then you have to eventually, hopefully hire employees that are going to come work within your system. And that's going to be the more affordable way to grow. Uh, but I'll absolutely, I have no problem with property management. I will absolutely work with external companies. No problem there. Uh, I expect to in the, in the near future. Um, it takes significant time to set up your own systems and it's significant energy, but in my mind it is worth it and it is a long-term play. Uh, there is a learning curve and you can make mistakes, uh, which is the biggest risk because big mistakes can cost big money. Uh, so the biggest thing I could suggest to you, if you are going to self-manage is have a really great network. If you don't have a really great network in your city where you invest, uh, reconsider that decision. Because when things come up and you don't know and you're not sure, what do I do with this? If you don't have another investor that you can say, hey, I'm having this problem with my rental, uh, what would you do? Uh, you know, you're going you're to be reinventing the wheel. Uh, it's not to say you can't do it. It's just how many headaches do you want? Okay, so some operational musts. Uh, this is non-negotiable. So you need to have a series of emails or a temp, like a, an actual tenant booklet that outlines what tenants are supposed to do with garbage, what the expectations are with cleanliness, rent payments, uh, maintenance requests. You don't want to be getting a call in the middle of the night about a light bulb. Uh, in fact, I would prefer that my tenants didn't have my phone number. Um, so I, I basically give them very specifics, you know, don't call me. And I, I also back it up. I won't answer when they call. Um, unless we've pre-negotiated something where we were going to talk. Um, I, I, I might even just respond to their call with an email. See, I, I saw that you called me. What's up? <laughs> um, so, you, you know, you just want to keep that consistent. Uh, another thing is uh, have a spreadsheet with the names, emails, phone numbers, lease terms, uh, end dates of the leases, the rent amounts, and the payment methods. Whether you use management or not, if for some reason your, your property manager fires you, like mine did, um, you want to make sure that you have all this information. I didn't, when I got fired, I didn't have any of that information. So I was scrambling. I didn't, I didn't have a direct withdrawal system. I didn't, you know, I didn't have anything. I, I had no idea what I was going to do. And I had like 20 days to go figure it all out. And, uh, I did, you know, because the pressure was on, but I'll give you the story. Why my property manager fired me. I, uh, I had a property I felt like could rent for $800 a bedroom plus, and he had it rented for $750. And all he said is, all we're going to do is we're going to get $750. Again, we can't get you more than that. You're not going to get more than that. That's the most we've ever rented anything for. End of story. I'm like, okay, well, I thought about it for a couple of days. I'm like, no. So I went into the office and I'm like, I, I couldn't speak with the same guy. So I spoke with another guy there. I'm like, hey, I'm going to rent out my own properties this year. Uh, you know, I just, this is too much. I, I, I really feel like I could do this and I, and I want to I wanna do that. I want to save the money too, because I was saving a lot of money in rental fees. And they emailed me two days later and said, we're firing you as a client. Uh, so anyways, but it, it worked out really well because I immediately saved like $12,000 in rental fees, like no joke. Um, and then I, uh, 
I ended up getting 860 a bedroom instead of uh, 750 times six. So uh, $660 of extra cash flow. Uh, that's not little. That's a lot. And, uh, you know, again, goes back to the point. They're not going to prioritize me. I, their, their priority is their business, not my rental property. So that's why I like the control there. I'm not saying that you can't work it out, but with my specific type of product, I felt that I needed to take control of that. Um, so anyways, uh, automatic withdrawal system, as I mentioned, that is important. So I use a system called Pendo Pay, which is paired with a uh, Pendo property management software. It is a subscription. It costs like 29 bucks a month. And I wish they would pay me to promote it because I promote it all the time, but they don't. Uh, but I use that and I don't really use it for the property management, but the seamless payment collection dropping into my account is um, something I would never give up. You do not want to leave payment, uh, uh, the payment uh, initiative in your tenant's hand. They will forget they won't initiate the, the e-transfer on the first of the month. It always happens. And when you're getting you know, 26, 27 payments a month, uh, that can get annoying. Uh, Got to have a handyman. So make sure you're building your network. Make sure you have somebody that can respond. Uh, you'll also want to have a rental agent showing agent, even if you don't have management, somebody that can go open doors at very least. Uh, so even if you're self-renting, do you have somebody that can go open the door? Uh, must have, put a lockbox on your properties with spare keys for all the bedrooms, spare keys for the front door, have key-coded front doors. Those are things that you can do to really streamline your system. Uh, so I would have a separate code that I would give to like, say, a handyman or uh, you know an HVAC contractor. If they showed up, I'd say, hey, here's the code. You can go in and it's a different code than the one the students have. Um, okay. So 24 hour emergency plumbing and heating company, you're going to want to have that as well. Um, and you put this in your email, you say, Hey, if an emergency happens in the middle of the night, don't call me. They already have my billing information. Call them. They'll come 24 hours a day. That is the number one lifesaver because anything that somebody's going to call you for in the, in the middle of the night is pretty much heating, air conditioning, or plumbing related. Uh, I can't really think of another thing. I mean, unless the house is on fire, in which case, you know, totally different or a flood, but you know, flood, you call the plumber. What am I going to do? Um, I'm not going to be able to do anything in the middle of the night. Uh, have good photos, have good floor plans and good virtual tours. Really critical, uh, to just help you market your property and market it over again. I've made that mistake of not doing it. And I would say, don't ever pass up the opportunity to get a really good virtual tour. Uh, timing matters. Like I said, know the dates, know when students are looking so you don't miss out on properties or opportunities to get, uh, uh, to get premium rents. And, uh, okay. So the lockdown, getting your house in order. So, so a couple of specifics here, uh, with this reaction to the virus, um, liquidity matters now more than ever. Um, and liquidity matters when you're managing uncertainty. Uh, I've generally made it a policy to have 10,000 to $15,000 per property in cash, uh, just because that's what helps me sleep at night. Not everybody will, will feel the same, but for me, that helps me sleep at night. And, uh, it kind of sucks because it sucks to have money sitting, when it could be working, but, uh, I consider it operating, operating capital and I treat my rental portfolio as a business as I believe everybody should, uh, secured lines of credits and unsecured lines of credits could potentially be frozen or pulled. Um, check your contracts. I don't, I don't consider those a guarantee. If the bank got concerned enough, they might just freeze up your lines. Uh, if they felt that the loan to value was compromised again, I haven't heard of that happening, but I do see it as a, as a possibility, uh, definitely with the unsecured ones. Cause those ones are more of a, Hey, you're a really good client. We'll let you do this for a while. Uh, but if you ever become not a great client, they could easily uh, turn it off. Uh, be patient. I really do think there are good deals coming in the next 12 months. And, uh, if we, 
hadn't already run so far, I, I would have, you know, gotten to a macroeconomics talk, but Austin gave you, gave you the, the um, podcast to go listen to if you want to hear me talk about macroeconomics and, and currency and all the things that are so wrong about, uh, about this, this COVID situation and the response and our government irresponsibility is just uh, beyond words, guys, just beyond words to me. But um, anyways, not to get political here. Um, so I think opportunities are coming. And the reason for that is uh, we're raining money on an economy. We're, we're raining money on an economy, but we're also killing jobs and killing business at the same time. Uh, so we're probably going to see a contraction followed by uh, much greater inflation. And then of course, taxation to follow. Uh, we're gonna see a lot of things, but my gut tells me that uh, in the short term, it might be a rocky road, but there, there might be some real opportunities down the road here. Um, but you're, if you're investing, if you're investing for fundamentals, you don't worry, as Austin said, you don't worry about price. You, you know, if, if, if your price goes up, it goes down. If you're confident in your economics and your market, uh, what you've got going on, you know that you have something that people are going to want in good times mm-hmm. and in bad, then, then you're not really worried about, about that happening. We got somebody, uh, oh, there we go. Um, okay. So let's keep moving here. Uh, so just a couple of thoughts, uh, Keep this in mind. Canadian dollar is a fiat currency and is by definition worthless. It is not worth anything. It's a piece of paper. You have to keep that in mind. Uh, big banks and our government are essentially stealing from us by, by injecting more currency into the market because now every dollar we have goes less it buys less. Um, so you have to balance the need for your operating capital with your, uh, your basic desire to preserve the buying power of your dollar, right? Um, I would love to have all my money in real estate, but then what do I buy food with? I don't want to have to worry about that. So it's a constant balancing act. Um, so you have to find that critical point where in all of this madness, you feel comfortable uh, that you know you can sleep at night. Like think about it. There are tenants that are asking. I had a tenant ask me, oh, Andrew, I'd like a rent. Uh, I'd like a free month of rent. So the, the day before rent was, was coming out of her account, she emails me, I'd like a free month of rent because of the, the situation. I'm like, well... Um, you know, here's the situation. Here's how I respond. Um, this money is due regardless of if you delay or not. And I'll, I'll happily, I will happily work with you. I wish you had reached out to me a bit sooner because I can't stop the payment. It's an automatic payment. I'll happily work with you, but I, I really don't want you building up a debt with me. So why don't you talk to me? You know, let me know what's going on. We can get on a phone call uh, and we'll work something out. Like how many payments do you think you'll need to do it over the course of this month? So I made it very clear that this isn't going away. And I explained, I don't get a discount on my taxes, on my, on my mortgage, on my insurance, anything. I have to pay all this stuff still. Uh, so unfortunately, I can't offer that. And all she did is just respond back and say, okay, no, it's all good. <laughs> and then she paid rent as normal. So, uh, you know what I mean? I think they're going to try, but the kids are getting this grant as Austin, as you mentioned, they're getting the grant. So, you know, they don't need to not pay. Uh, they have, we're fortunate where this becomes the problem is if we go, if we still don't have school back by January now, like come May 1st, like I'm trying to rent out for, for May 1st, 2021, uh, that's where, where we might hit a bit of a rocky road. Um, anybody who's buying a student rental right now, um, you make darn sure that that rents out and cash flows well as a family rental. Like, do not bank on getting student tenants right now. If you don't already have a lease in place, don't bank on it. 
if you find yourself with a vacancy right now, start finding a way to, to repurpose that so that it can service families. Uh, because I'm not saying you won't get them, but uh, you're going to want to have a really good contingency plan. Uh, so real estate has real value, real intrinsic value. It's like gold and silver. It can be used for things that people always need a place to live. Uh, and owners, oh, as owners, we stand to benefit. Like I said, when we go on this inflation ride, uh, I, I believe we, we stand to benefit. And, you, and again, listen to that Sarah Larby episode if you really want to want to dig in a bit deeper. Um, key consideration is in the absolute worst case scenario, if everything goes to hell, the government falls apart, the currency falls apart, uh, you know, we're in absolute chaos, people still need a place to live. So if you are servicing a group, who are you servicing? Who, who is going to want to rent your property? And uh, how much will you have to adjust your prices? Uh, I think if you're in the lower end rentals, you're, you're probably maybe even going to see uh, rents pushed up a bit. But if you're in the luxury market and people just are in chaos, like they're not going to be able to, to pay those rents. So um, again, if you're thinking about buying property, you have to think, well, what if I had to reduce my rents by 500 bucks? Like, you know, what is, what is likely to happen in your market? How much would you need to address? And this is why cash flow is so important. I know, Austin, you said, you know, people who can get break even in Toronto are, are okay. Well, case in point, why that's actually not okay, in my opinion, and I'm not trying to argue here, uh, so don't mind, but uh, rents in Toronto are down 33% right now, 33% from a few months ago. Uh, so, so, so my. Uh, my wife uh, has a has a property that's just uh, retenanting uh, for for July first, and now she she has it rented out for thirty eight hundred thirty seven hundred bucks a month. Now what's she going to rent for? So she had cash flow, and now she's probably going to be negative cash flow. So um, you know, again, like a big buffer is so so important because you just never know what might happen. Uh, if you don't feel like you've got that property, that, that, that property that, that can handle and weather a storm, if a storm is coming, maybe now you want to consider making a change. Uh, you know, the market's still moving. Uh, properties are still transacting. It seems like there's still an opportunity. So a couple of remarks. Uh, networking is huge. So network and take action. Uh, analyze deals daily. If you're just getting started, I have a cash flow spreadsheet I'm going to share with you. Um, take complete responsibility for your, uh, your results. We all have obstacles, but the results are still our responsibility. Hedge your risk with everyone you deal with. And that goes, you know, contractors, property management. The more you are in control or at least have the ability to take control, uh, the better off you're going to be. And then always have a plan A, B, and C. And uh, let's see here. So contacting me. So at the Andrew Hines on Instagram or Facebook, if you want to reach out to me, that's the best way to send me a message. Guys, a lot of messages in this, uh, this um, chat. I don't know if we'll get to them all, but we'll try. Um, if you want to check out the podcast uh, link tree, my, my handle is still the um, Andrew Hines and uh, greater Hamilton REI meetup. Uh, Austin would always be coming out to those when we were having them. Um, so we uh, will eventually be back to uh, meeting up in person. And uh, just a quick note on this guys, like think about the Canada that we know and love. Um, there's one way for this virus to go. There's one way and that's herd immunity, no matter what, whether it's vaccine, whether it's, whether it's just normal resuming, there's one way and Sweden's doing it. Japan's doing it. Uh, that's herd immunity. Everybody gets it. So, um, I don't want to live in a country long-term. This is just me, um, where everybody walks around with something over the face and I can't see it. I want to see people smile. I mean, call me selfish. I want to see people smile. Uh, you know, I want to go out and I, I want you to encourage you to question things a little bit here. What is the media's motive? What are, what are some of the multiple motives going on here that, that are pushing this narrative when we see so many signs that we're coming out of this and so many signs that, that we're moving forward. We're devastating our economy every single day 
when we know at the end of the day, most of us are more likely to get a hit by a bus than to die from this. So um, it's just things to ask questions about. I'm not diminishing it. I know people uh, have suffered from this and, and, you know, we've all been impacted from this. And, and of course, I have my own biases. I don't deny that. Uh, but I really, really do think it's important that we, uh, we question what we're being told here because I, I have... Uh, you know, I just have a real feeling that the, the media is, uh, is not always looking out for us and, and do need to be questioned more. So just my you, side tangent. Sorry, if you guys are interested in hearing more about that, because uh, I guess it could be a hot take for, for some people. You dive really deep into that, into the Sarah Larby podcast. So yeah. make sure you guys check that out. <laughs> hey, I'm not going to say I don't start converse, uh, controversy <laughs> sometimes, but I do call things like I see them. I've started questioning things from a very young age. I'm an investor, a business person. I went to business school and we questioned CEOs. We, we did case studies. We were questioning everybody. Nobody is above questioning. And, uh, and, and nobody is to be assumed to be altruistic. We are all a certain percent altruistic and a certain percent selfish. And uh, to assume anything other than that would be silly. So anyway, side tangent, I know. Uh, okay, so cash flow analyzer. This is my cash flow sheet that I've built uh, over the years, just kind of tweaked it, made it something I like. Um, it sizes up the profitability of a deal in a couple of minutes, and I'm going to show you a sample of that. Uh, ensures you meet uh, commercial lending guidelines. So if you want to check out, if you meet that debt coverage ratio I was talking about, um, I'm going to go through that in just a second here. And uh, if you would like to get a copy of that, uh, maybe just do a screenshot of this. It's andrew-hines forward slash cash flow. And uh, maybe somebody can just write that in the chat um, just so we have it. So it's really, really simple. Andrew-Hines slash cash flow. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and just pull this up on the screen real quick. If uh, I'm just going to stop share here and close this. And let's see here. Screen share. Sure. Okay. Can you uh, see the spreadsheet? Yep. Okay, so I'll go to this. This is actually one of the properties that I showed you from that summer of Burrs. Uh, this is actually what I have it rented for right now. And these are all my expenses from 2019. So I, I took them right off of what I sent to the accountant. And uh, so this one I have rented for $695 a bedroom, which is $34.75 a, um, a month. So it's $41,700 annually. I didn't put any vacancy in here. I've never had vacancy on it. But... Uh, Obviously, you can add that in. We'll, we'll perform some sensitivity. So here are a couple of things I'm just going to go through. So my taxes on that one are 49.35, which is actually kind of high for London. Uh, originally, when I bought it, it was twenty like six hundred dollars a month. And then because I got a permit and because I did renovation, they reassessed my property with MPAC, and my taxes basically doubled. Yeah, how's that for you? Add value, we tax you more. Uh, it does. <laughs> I don't know. The logic doesn't really seem like it's there to me, to be quite honest. But uh, so bank charges, these were like transaction charges from direct withdrawal payments, 103 bucks. Um, I also build the property management software I use to this property specifically. So this property has slightly higher expenses because I kind of uh, put all the expenses against it. Cleaning, I had to clean it once uh, on turnover for 498 bucks. I had a $1,300 rental agent fee. Um, my, uh, electric and, and water was uh, 2414 and I had $721 in gas. Um, 
insurance that's with tax. That's what I paid 1466, which is actually higher. I used to pay like 1250 on this, but insurance went up. So, um, constantly see changes and you got to be prepared for them. Maintenance. These are just like furnace filters, odds and ends, fixes, uh, paint touch-ups, this and that on turnover, 1340 bucks. And then landscaping, I had to pay, uh, 904. So students don't cut their own grass. I, I, um, I do that for them. So, um, okay. So here's how that all shakes out. This is my actual, uh, appraised value that I had back in 2016. This is the amount of my mortgage, 30 year, 2.69%. My mortgage payment was 1750. My cash flow real for real, um, actual cash flow is $553 a month. Um, on that property. So uh, I would like it to be higher, but that's still pretty solid. I mean, that's a property that I had next to nothing into. And uh, so looking at, so if you go further down the sheet, and this is the one that you can get off the website, the only thing I would say is there's a couple of hidden cells on it. So if you just highlight them and go unhide, um, you'll, you'll be able to see all of them. Um, so I've got my pay down over five years and the way that's calculated is actually with a mortgage amortization chart here. So you can actually calculate how much is my mortgage paid down? Cause that's part of your return. Uh, 4% uh, appreciation is what I've actually gotten. So I just went ahead and did it, um, and added it in. So if you add all that up, you've got your mortgage pay down, you've got your appreciation at 4% and then the cash flow that I got on a yearly basis, uh, that's $38,000 return. So if I bought this property at the value I got it appraised at, my return on investment would have been 32.86%. Um, and I apologize if I'm going fast here for, uh, for anybody uh, catch the replay. And of course, you'll have a chance to play with the sheet yourself. But in reality, I didn't actually put $117,000 into this. This calculated $1,700 for legal fees. It had calculated my land transfer tax. Uh, and it, it has my down payment calculated. I was only in for about 8000 $8, bucks on this one. So my return is like, 482%. Uh, again, not reasonable to expect that. Uh, it doesn't always work like that, but if you're getting perfect burrs, your, your infinity return, right? Um, and that's the idea of a burr. That's why a burr is so powerful. But okay. So change gears. If, if I was just looking at this deal from an outside perspective, this is how I would fill out the sheet. So I would have my, my number at the top. So 695 times five in the cell. Oh, and, uh, so that's, that's the total at the time, because my taxes were 2,600, I would have assumed that maybe they'd go up a thousand bucks or whatever. So I would have probably plugged in 3,500. Um, I would have figured 3,600 for utilities. I actually came in less than this, but 3,600 is $300 a month. So 1,200 square foot house, that's a fair assumption. Uh, for insurance, I would have figured around 1,300 bucks because that's my experience. But I'll highlight the ones in yellow where I think I should perform some sensitivity. You know, like what happens if that goes up? What happens if that goes down? Um, so maintenance, I would just figure 5%, management 8%. But here's the thing. If, if some managers charge 8% plus leasing fees, if you're paying that, you're more like 12%. So you got to adjust these things. So here I might think, so I might, I might change this. So I might say, okay, I'm going to edit this. So I might think I've got 500 and, and you know, $11 in uh, cash flow. But then I say, well, wait a minute. What if I can't find a manager for as cheap as I want? Or what if I have to rerun the property more than I expected? So let's perform sensitivity. And sensitivity is just adjusting my assumptions. So I'd say, okay, what if I'm 12%? Well, now my cash flow goes down to 372. Then you have to ask yourself, is that okay? Am I okay with that? Am I okay with having only 370 uh, bucks? What happens if that happens and my taxes go up to 4,500? you know, oh, still got some cash flow. What happens if my insurance goes up? They have a really bad year with insurance companies and they go up to 2000, you know? So what happens if that happens? Well, I still have cash flow. So this is me testing the possibilities. This is me testing. What if, what if something bad happens? What if something else bad happens? What if three bad things happen? Am I still okay? 
Because the problem with those Toronto investors that invested at break-even cash flow or negative cash flow that are now about to go to maybe negative a thousand is how do you sleep at night? When you know every, say, say it starts with that, but then you go underwater and you, and you owe more on it than, you, than, it's, uh, than it's worth and it's negative cash flow. I mean, how, I, I think the psyche of an investor is just too damaged by that for, for most people, unless you have a really strong constitution and you're really not bothered by things like that. Um, you know, everyone's different. Everyone's different. I'm not, I'm not making judgments here, but for me, I would have trouble with that. So um, that's why I, I mean to say, you know, test your assumptions. So these are some of the assumptions that I would, I would peg and you'll notice that my cash flow is roughly in line with what I actually got. Um, maintenance, if it's an older property, I would probably want to go 10%. Um, because if you had to repaint the house, one house to repaint is going to cost more than 2000 bucks in one year. If you're repainting that house every year, your maintenance, you might as well put in 20%. <laughs> so you really have to consider property by property. If it's old, what things could go wrong? Do I have sanitary sewers? Do I have an old furnace? You know, if my sanitary sewer has roots in it, I could have a backup. It could cost me 20 grand. Uh, replacing that sewer could cost five to 10, depends on how far you have to go. Uh, so you really do need to investigate things that might go wrong with a property. And uh, again, you know, take a look at the spreadsheet, play with it. Um, I, I think you'll find it helpful. Uh, I, I shaded it with, you know, edit the blue cells, but if you're savvy with Excel, you can edit the other ones too. Um, just, you know, you always know where to go to get a, to get a copy of the original again. So, uh, with that said, let's just open it up to the questions. Austin, I'm sorry this went so long. No, no, it was amazing. And I, we still have actually a lot of people still on. So, okay. uh, definitely great value. Thanks for that, Andrew. We're gonna, we're gonna jump into a bunch of questions. We have a lot to get through. So to, to, where are we starting? How do we... Uh, yeah, I'm going to try so, and find the questions again. Uh, how, would appraiser not, how would appraisers not know the comps? I guess you were talking a bit about some appraisers not being super knowledgeable. Um, they might not know a comp uh, if it was... The, the main reason is it's off market. So there's a lot of properties that trade hands off market. If it didn't get listed, it, they won't know the comp. So that's, that's the biggest single uh, reason, but there are other appraisers that just miss stuff. I don't know. I don't know. Like maybe they set their criteria to look within the last three months and there was a sale four months ago, but they didn't even see it. They didn't even acknowledge it. Right. And perhaps if they had, they'd say, Oh, wait a minute. Why'd that sell for so much more? Uh, so it's your job as the investor to, uh, to make sure that you're aware of that so that you can, you can head off that problem before it happens. Uh, yeah. And sometimes appraisers don't go in level headed. Uh, sometimes they already have uh, something in mind or they're emotional, right? If you force them to kind of give you an appraisal price, they might get offended uh, and just like talk, yeah. <laughs> talk yeah. you unnecessary. You need to, yeah, with what I said, caveat, um, you really do need to, um, to do it with tact. You know, don't go telling them their job, right? You try and, you try and be curious, right? Approach it with curiosity yeah. and always, um, you know, I don't want to say submit, but I'll always acknowledge their authority in the situation and acknowledge that you're not trying to control their outcome. 100%. <laughs> um, how do you convince all students to sign one lease when they don't know each other? Well, they should know each other. So I, I aim to get, uh, to get groups that, uh, that form them on their own. So that's the key with knowing your timing. They meet in September and these students form a group and I actually only really... Um, will deal with groups. So I asked them before I even show them the property and make sure they have all five people. Is a permit required for lipstick renos or when you're adding a bedroom or living space? 
uh, well, if you're adding living space, then yes. Um, but, uh, like if you're adding an addition, absolutely. Um, if you're taking out a wall, I think, you know, generally the answer is going to be, uh, for electrical, if you're moving electrical, you should have an ESA permit, uh, with your electrician, not with the city. Um, that's a that's a little bit of a gray area i would think to just remove one wall or add one wall uh but generally if you're adding uh bedrooms i believe i believe the, the answer is yes they're gonna want want you to have a permit mm-hmm. um is it true that student rentals don't appraise for much that they don't appraise for much yeah not true no <laughs> uh <laughs> if you if you have the wrong appraiser anything can appraise uh can appraise poorly uh appraisals i haven't found to be my my main challenge with them it's it's the uh it's their lending criteria and the stress test that that make it really challenging right now uh to get you know I, i'm i'm closer to like 65 percent on my last refi that, that was the loan to value wow. i got so and again you you try to avoid that by not putting in like 10 bedrooms in your property and also at least having a common living area. So um, yeah, it's not really like all bedrooms in the house. Well, you know, a big challenge is that, that like, cause we're slipping them through as residential for the most part. Um, they're like, so with CIBC, they would take a market rental rate of yeah. a family rental, not a student rental. So I was getting like 50, 51, 60 a month in gross rent. And they were only giving me, uh, they were only giving me, uh, 3,800, which was still generous. That was still really generous. Mm -hmm. So let's see here. Go there. Most of your real estate portfolio is in student rentals in London, which is a city with a lot of corporate offices. So you're able to pivot. What about a city like Windsor, which isn't as diverse? How would a student rental be affected due to COVID-19 school, uh, COVID-19 as I guess courses move online only? So Austin, I know you've got a few uh, a few student rentals down there too. I mean, you can probably speak better to what Windsor has going on. Uh, yeah, so of- I, I, I think it just really boils down to what I was saying before is, is that even if vacancies increase, if you're in a good location and you have a good product and you can drop rents temporarily, uh, theoretically, you should be able to rent it out because your, your product that you're offering in the markets is going to be more desirable than other ones out there. There are always going to be great tenants in every city. Um, just of course, Windsor is more blue collar in nature. So we're, we're taking a bit more risk by investing there. But again, the good product, good location, if you can, if you can compete with market rents, then you should have no issue renting yours out versus some other like crappy products that are out there, but it's always going to be a risk. It's all supply and demand too, right? So, so if you can, if you can afford to come down a bit in your rents, uh, because you have excess cash flow, uh, then you know you're you're basically going to be in a position to react and handle it. And especially if you have the premium rental location, if you have if you have the better product, um, even if if a lot of other people go vacant, you might be the last one to go vacant. So you hedge yourself that way. But I mean, isn't that why you you get higher cash flow there? Like, there's a trade off, right? You get higher cash flow, and you, you you take a little bit more risks, and that's that's classic investing 101, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The risk reward. Yeah. Um, can you use an independent appraiser, one that your lender doesn't approve, and use that for the refinance appraisal? No, no. Like they're very strict about it has to go through their system. It has to go through NAS or Solidify or F- FCT, FNF, whatever it is. Um, they'll uh, they they want to have it. So no, you can't go around that. Don't go, go don't go find your own appraiser and then just get them to make an appraisal report. <laughs> Um, do you encounter any pushback or difficulties making your students sign one lease agreement? 
No, uh, no, they're, they're totally cool with that. I just explained to them, this is, this is what we do. And this is, you know, this is, uh, this is the legal way of doing it is really the truth of, of the matter. And, uh, I say, so your rent is, you know, six ninety five a bedroom, but you'll see the total on the lease and they're all equally responsible. It's really nice. It, it works really well if there are ever damages or anything like that, uh, because they're all responsible. So they, they behave and they, they act generally like I get good, good tenants and I, you know, when there was a problem, I, I just had some problems. I had some damages on one of my units and I told them this is what it's going to cost. And they sent me the money within a week. Can you go over the formula for debt to coverage ratio? Oh yeah. That's the one I forgot. Okay. Good call. Good call. All right. Let me do that right now. Um, and what cash flow should we aim for on a property that won't affect up our own power? <laughs> so you'll notice that I did that sensitivity there, right? There's not a hard number of cash flow uh, mm-hmm. that I can give you. Um, as long as your, your property is in surplus, most lenders are most likely going to look at it as a wash, like companies that use a debt coverage ratio, like CIBC, for instance, if you have multiple properties, they basically take this approach even on their residential side, nice. but they still apply residential guidelines. So, um, you're not working with commercial lending. It's not the same as that, but they do, they do kind of use, they borrow some of the wisdom of commercial lending. Um, so there's not a hard number I found for me. Like if you look at, like you've heard of the 1% rule, like I'm probably not buying something in, unless I'm getting at least 0.65%. Um, and now like probably looking for more like 0.8 to 1% depending on the type of asset. But I, I would only be buying, the only, I would only be buying things that work as family rentals right now. So looking at this number, uh, what's, my, uh, what's my rule here? Uh, let's go. Yeah, so no, it's not actually 1%. 0.64. So, um, that's kind of where I want to be. I, I noticed that there's, there's like a, there's like a nice amount of cash flow in that range. I, I can usually make something cash flow reasonably well. Um, I also will look at cap rates. Like if you're, if you're thinking about a cap rate, like I'm really enticed if I can get like a six cap in an area I really like, like, especially for student rentals, uh, really hard to find, but I've bought a couple like that. So and, are you uh, looking at your cap rate actually from ARV value or your purchase price? This cap rate is, is, is from this value here. That's ARB. Gotcha. Um, yeah, and I would look at it from ARB. Mm-hmm. Like if I can get it there, and especially if I can pull the money out, then I'm laughing. But I would actually buy a six cap just because if I bought a six cap, and this guys, this sheet calculates it for you so you can just figure that out. Um, but if, if I buy that, then I know that I can even put in a private second mortgage so I could actually put like a 22%, so 22% second mortgage for, uh, let's see here, that times that and i could put it at uh, 10% interest rate say and what's that going to work out to on a monthly it might even cash flow on this one it won't cash flow but uh so this one you'll see that it won't but let's see here some and might have to update the formula it wasn't meant to have that there and Okay. For some reason that's not updating right now, but basically you could add that other mortgage in and, uh, and you would see that I'd be negative, right? Cause that's a $993 payment. I only had $511 in cash flow. So if I were to borrow a second mortgage there, I wouldn't be able to, uh, to cash flow. So in that certain circumstance, I wouldn't be interested in buying a property, um, just straight up with no burr involved. 
um, right now, especially right now. Right. But in other circumstances I might, whereas if, if, if all of a sudden you start to see this number around a six, that number, I just tried to calculate that'll start working. So I'll be able to use secondary financing to cover my down payment and I'll still cash flow. Those are the type of deals that are great. And I'm sure if you work out the numbers on those, we're closer to a 1% rule. Maybe we're like a 0.8%, something like that. Um, okay. So, so the DCR, so how that works, why we came over here, uh, this is your operating income. So once you take your, you have your rents on the top and you'll usually have a vacancy rate, the lender might use 3%. So they'll put that there. Um, and then they will take all these expenses off and this is what's left over. So you start with 41,700 and then you take off all your expenses and you've got 25,928, um, left. Now that number, uh, is basically compared to your annual debt service. So the annual debt service is $21,036. And they divide it out, and that's where the, two, the 1.23 comes from. So that's how that works. Um, guys, the best thing I could recommend is grab the sheet and then click this and see what, see what numbers go into it. Uh, so see how that works. Play around with the sheet. Uh, it's probably easier to go hands-on than to just see me explain it, especially because I'm trying to go a bit fast because I know we have a lot of questions to get to. Um, do you make your students pay utilities or is that included in rent? No, I listen to my market and, and, you know, the students want inclusive. So I, I just bill a bit higher and, and, uh, you know, I, I, I have updated plumbing, updated electrical, updated heat sources. So, um, usually like the, the 1200 to 1500 square foot houses are, are, uh, are around, uh, you know, say three, seven or two seventy five a month on average for me. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, does your rent include mortgage payment? I think that means cash flow is what he meant to write. Does your cash flow include mortgage payment, which you do have that down on your calculator? Okay. So for, for cap rate and for DCR, you don't figure the mortgage. Um, this is the way you should do it. Use the spreadsheet the way it's laid out. So you figure out your operating income, which does not consider your mortgage because the, the logic is you want to figure out how the asset performs not how the ass, not how your financing performs. So you're first figuring out how your asset performs and then you're considering your mortgage second. So that's why mortgage falls underneath that on the sheet. Thoughts on commercial or residential appraiser as a career choice? Interesting question. Well, anything, and I say this a lot on the podcast, anything that you can do to get into the industry, you're going to learn. Like, you know, even go work for a property manager. I can't imagine like Sarah Etter talked about it when she came on the podcast and just how fast she's grown. Um, she would never have grown that fast if she didn't have that hands-on experience. So anything you could do to get right into the, the dirt and like just handle everything, you'll have so much more confidence. Uh, so if you become an appraiser, I'm not sure you're going to get as hands-on uh, experience that you're going to want, but it depends on what your goals are. If you don't intend on, on, you know, being a, a real estate investor or using it for that reason. And you just think it's interesting then by all means. For the first time a home buyer, how do I avoid hidden problems like potentially broken sewage? Uh, you can camera your lines. Uh, so, so the big, the big costs, the big things that are going to cost you money are potential leaks. So whether they be from plumbing, your roof, um, they be from your sewer backing up. Water is pretty much your enemy. Water and sewage are kind of your enemy. Um, and then shorts with your electrical. These are things that can be a lot of money. Rewiring a house can be a lot of money. Um, furnace failing, you know, you could be $5,000 there depending on who, who your contractor is. So just know the high cost items and make sure you have a good home inspector or a good contractor that's helping you out to, to check over that property. But even still, if it's used stuff, some people just can't predict. You can't predict when something's going to give out and just go. 
but you can camera your sewer line. You can do that. So do that as part of your home inspection. It might cost you a hundred bucks or 200 bucks. When you refinance, don't you need 20% left in the newly in the new appraised value? Therefore, how do you pull out all your money in a burr? I guess so more so of a we, math question. We, yeah, we did cover that before, but I mean, so you look at this is the number, right? This this number here is 80% of what I uh, what I got it appraised for. So I had bought that house for 245,000 and my renovations were around 220. So when you work that out, I was in for like $8,000. So I got a mortgage for 433 and I was into it for 440, say. So after all that, I was in for like eight grand, seven grand. And uh, that's how you can pull all your money out. It's, it's not about what you have into the, the property. It's what the appraiser thinks it's worth. Yeah. So you, you have to compare that to what you have in. And hopefully the appra- yeah, if the appraiser thought it was worth a million bucks, I could have pulled out $300,000. So it really just depends on, on uh, your ability to, to know your market and to know what it costs to add value in your market. Um, Phil says he's getting quite a bit of response from students for September in Windsor. It's good. It's good to hear. I know Phil also does the ultra luxury student rental similar to you. So maybe that's why as well. Cool. Phil, well, Hey, that's awesome. So people still want to come to school because they know they're going to be, uh, they're going to be lined up for January anyway. That's awesome, man. I'm, I'm, I'm stoked to hear that. Does Pendo pay withdrawal money from each different student or just one? Is there any risk of rental being deemed a rooming house based on the way you collect rent? Uh, no, no, not, not to my knowledge, no risk at all with how you collect the rent, but yeah, Pendo, it takes it out of every single student's account and I get an email from each single one. So then I use QuickBooks online. So I just, you know, I have them all set up in there. I just type in the numbers. Um, and I would recommend have your books in order, guys, if this is a business for you, uh, I would highly recommend using a service like QBO or, uh, or the likes. I mean, they, they seem to be the dominant in the industry and I really don't like that. Like, I don't like that Amazon's the only site people buy from or Walmart or whatever. Like I like competition. So somebody wants to start another bookkeeping company by all means. Um, do you include utilities in DSR calculation if the tenant pays? Uh, no, I wouldn't. Um, but it depends on what the lender does. Cause every lender is a bit different, especially on the residential side, the lender might just assume it. Um, and then on commercial lending, like RBC would look different than TD. They, they all have their own formula. So you, I would prepare this when I send it over to them, but they might take my numbers and tweak them anyway. Like, so I'm not really in direct control of that. The best thing to do is to ask them ahead of time what they consider, or if they can send you their, their cash flow template, like ask them for their cash flow template so you can see what they do. What would we do for Burr if I'm not following? What would we do for a Burr if private for down construction mortgage do updates to boost equity to refi under commercial mortgage and pay back private? Uh, I'm, I'm assuming he's saying that the down payment is going to be borrowed and he's going to use construction mortgages for the updates to boost the equity to refi. And he wants yeah. to refi under a commercial mortgage and pay back the private uh, down payment. So he's asking if, if, if he uses I guess a private mortgage and then refinance? And refi, yeah, you, right? Like asking, can you do that? Or can well, you, cause, yeah, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. Maybe you can confirm, Gerbier. Until then, we'll, we'll move on to the next one. How do I find a mentor? Oh yeah. Gervier said yes. Oh, so, yeah. uh, 542, uh, average market value, similar homes post reno. Um, would the appraiser visit those homes in case? Um, so, okay. So your first question, Gervier, 
is, uh, yes, you can do it. Uh, private mortgage is what I've used. Um, and you can secure the mortgage on other properties. 100% loan to value is, is, is not going to be a possibility unless you have other properties that they can secure. Yeah. So if you have your own home, uh, a mortgage broker can set it up where they can actually blanket your home with a second mortgage and that covers your down payment on the one you're buying. So there are creative ways. There's a, there's a way if you have homes or properties with equity in them. Uh, so regarding the 542, would they, would they go into the other houses? The answer is most likely no, because uh, you'd have to get permission from those people. So it's not really going to happen. Um, but if you had a, like for instance, the appraiser I was working with a lot, she would say, send me every sale agreement you have on every house you do. And I get everybody else to do the same. So she's like, so I have all the comparables. And then she could use them. If she had sale agreements on other properties, she could use them. Uh, I more would use my comment as uh, as a reason that they should look into it. So maybe they can talk to another appraiser. I can say, Hey, I know that appraiser appraised this property. Maybe you could speak with them. And then those appraisers might be able to share between the two of them uh, to get the information. Cause if they can't find the comparable, they can't use it. But if, if somebody else can help them get the confirmation, then they could use it. Um, okay. So do we have, so what do you, did we get most of the other ones? Uh, yeah, we just have about three questions, three okay. or four questions left. So how do you recommend uh, we make sure we don't over leverage ourselves? Uh, I think it comes down to cash flow. And I know you said something similar, you know, you said, you know, don't, don't go to 80. Uh, I think I get, I get your logic there. Like it's all a factor of what market are you in? Um, what is your true risk? Um, you know, the, the less pivots you have, the more cash buffer you need. And uh, so every market's different for me. Uh, I mean, if I have a, a property worth 540 that gets $500 in cash flow, like, that's borderline where I feel comfortable because that's a, that's a pretty true number. Like that, that number is not lying. That's a, that's an accurate number. Whereas a lot of people will calculate their, their number and and it's a, it's a false number. It's not, not real. You don't, you won't actually get that. So, um, so let's see here. Uh, do private lenders like to see a track record of you doing deals with conventional lending before working together? Uh, it doesn't matter who you financed it with in the past. Private lenders want to see a track record, of course. Uh, they, they look at you like a business. Same with commercial lenders. They look at you and say, you know, show me your resume. And usually the broker will do this, right? The broker will say, hey, can you send me a CV? Send me a, you know, send me a list of properties you've done. Uh, a little write-up on, on your experience and why, we, you, why you believe you're capable of handling this. So if you're, if you're not doing the GCing, then you just say, hey, I've done you know, this property or I haven't, but I have this, you know, these financial assets and I've hired this this GC and, uh, and I've got my after, so you'll get an appraisal as is and on complete. So right when you're setting up your financing, they give you an appraisal for as is, and then they give you appraisal for, uh, for what it's going to be worth when it's done. Uh, so you actually act, you have to ask for that and you submit it to the lender. And, uh, and that's, uh, so you give them confidence that way so they can see, okay, this actually is worth something. And you've hired a GC to get you there. Is that, uh, and I apologize everyone for, for going fast. No, <laughs> no, no, no worries. This, this is great. Long. We still yeah. have, we still have 62 people on. So a lot of people okay. are still tuning in and okay. getting value out of it. Um, okay. yeah. Any, and anyone wants to send me direct messages, uh, just do it on Instagram. That's or Facebook. Uh, it's just easier if, if I missed anyone or if I, if there was something you wanted to ask me privately. So maybe we'll just hit these last two one two questions sure. and then we can wrap up. Would you do a non-conforming duplex or go the extra mile and of course the renovation expenses to have a legal conversion? Uh, what are your thoughts on the pros and cons of both? I generally uh, I don't like investing money in something that's legally uh, uncertain. Um, it, it's all like it, it's it's weighing the risk versus the return, like everything, right? So 
I, uh, I have a rental property that has one bedroom that's technically not a bedroom because uh, you, you can only have a maximum three legal bedrooms per unit in London. And I have one of them grandfathered in, but the other is not. And, um, you know, it's a matter of, you know, do I have, do I have a pivot there? Could I rent it out as a three bedroom? And yes, I could. And I could, I could actually charge more for each bedroom if I did that. So it's not really a big deal if I get shut down for four and a half to go to three. So as long as I'm comfortable with, with knowing that if the money I invested might be wasted, um, then it's a go, right? It's how long does it take to pay back versus how likely is it you're, you're, you're uh, to get shut down is the real question. Not that I'm advising you to do anything illegal. I'm not. This is, <laughs> that, this is my thought process. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the last one, when did you purchase your first Burr property? Did you set up a company to purchase it or you just purchased, you, you just bought it personally? And at what point would you consider setting up a company for burring or I guess investments in general? Okay. Um, so there's a good, good episode of the podcast that you should listen to my podcast. Uh, I think it's episode 48 or 49 with, uh, with, uh, George Duby. Mm-hmm. And we talk about taxation and, you know, basically some of the things to consider. So, uh, short answer is, is I actually did everything personally early on. And then I eventually started a company to flip properties cause I, you know, I, I didn't just keep them. I did, I did do some to sell. And, uh, so I was flipping com- uh, properties with another company that I, that I created for that because there was, there was a taxation reason to do that, uh, because active income in a corp was like 13%. And, uh, as far as owning for buy and hold, I have created a company that I have that for, for now. Um, but, generally speaking, like, I think there's a lot of pros and cons to both. Like I I like owning personally for, for some of the tax treatment and for the capital gains incentive. Uh, but, uh, at the end of the day, I think both, both work. Um, if it's a long-term strategy and you plan to buy a lot of units, um, I think, I think buying in a company makes a lot of sense. And if I could go back, I mean, assuming COVID hadn't happened, uh, you know, I, I had it on my, my mind a lot that I would, that I would want to switch my properties into my company uh, so that I could start using commercial financing all underneath the company umbrella. So that's the biggest reason, just using commercial financing under, under the umbrella of your company. Cool. Um, yeah, so that pretty much wraps up all of the questions here. So I want to thank you guys and especially Andrew for spending the last, what, like three and a half hours uh, or like two and a half hours yeah. here with us, uh, dropping value. I definitely learned a lot. Andrew's always uh, teaching investors as much as he can. Um, if you if you guys haven't already listened to his podcast, definitely check it out. Um, all of this will be online completely for free as well. Again, Andrew is not getting paid for this. Neither am I getting paid for, for organizing this event. So if you guys can and you guys enjoyed the information that you learned, make sure to give Andrew a follow on Instagram. So that's at the Andrew Hines. Um, I'll just write it down in the chat. Yeah, guys. And if you wouldn't mind, uh, if you do enjoy the podcast, uh, leaving me a review um, on, uh, on Inst- or sorry, on uh, iTunes or Apple Podcasts, it helps the podcast reach more people. I'd really appreciate it. Yeah. And, and again, like, uh, all we're, we're not getting paid or anything for this. So like all, all we do ask is to just show support whenever you guys can, of course, take action on the, on the stuff Andrew and I, uh, mentioned throughout this, um, uh, throughout this event. Um, and yeah, like I, I, that's, that's it on my end. Any, anything yeah. else that? Well, no, thank you so much. I see all the comments there. Everybody saying, thank you. Really appreciate it. Um, you know, I'm glad, glad you found value and, uh, you know, any feedback or things that you think I could to do to improve, shoot me a message and, and then I can always tweak it for, uh, for future times I give this talk. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome, man. Thank you guys. Okay. Uh, we'll see you guys next time.
All right, thanks. Thanks again. Do you need me to stop this recording? Or uh, no, I'm stopping it.